Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted to talk to Abdullah Al-Andalusi. Al You're most welcome, sir. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Great to be back again. Yep, it's great to have you on the channel, I must say. Um, for those who don't know, Abdullah is an international speaker, thinker, and an intellectual activist for Islam and Muslim affairs. He's a researcher for the I3 Institute, an instructor and head of the Department of Occidentology at the Quran Institute and co-founder of the Discussion Forum, the Muslim Debate Initiative. For 20 years, his work has been uh, in explaining and demonstrating the intellectual proofs for the Islamic belief system, promoting the Islamic way of life and Islamic solutions for contemporary problems and advocating for the rights of Muslims across the world. He's taught a number of courses and uh, given a variety of lectures at universities and colleges internationally. But he is better known for his numerous TV appearances and public debates. Most recently, of course, his appearance on the Piers Morgan show. Uh, we can watch it on YouTube. Uh, um, Abdullah will be going through today a concise uh, summary of the history of Palestine and Israel in order to give us, to give people a basic understanding of the history and a foundation for further reading, research and advocacy for Palestine. And this is part one of two parts. The second part, where he'll be looking in more detail at the top 10 Zionist uh, uh, arguments and responses to criticisms. And he'll be going through each of those in some details. This is a foundational video, the first part. The second part, he'll be going into the Zionist arguments. So uh, I really need to look at both parts to get the whole story. So in addition to working from scholarly research, Abdullah will approach the subject from a critical debater's eye. So that's my introduction. But my, my first question really is, can I just ask, first of all, how did you first get into refuting Zionism and advocating for Palestinian rights? Yeah, well, um, yeah, thank you for the introduction. Um, basically, I've done a number of debates and uh, lectures on a variety of topics over the many years, um, decades, dare I say. Um, and uh, many people, obviously, have probably seen my lectures and debates on atheism, uh, yeah. my early ones on Christianity back in the day, um, and, uh, and various debates of liberals and so on and so forth. But uh, a lesser-known secret is that my first ever uh, lecture that I gave um, at in a more academic setting was on the topic of uh, Palestine and Israel in 2008. I was invited to a college in London, and the actually the majority of the students were were Jewish, and they were very fascinated to hear an alternative viewpoint. And many of them agreed. Um, in fact, the only one I remember who actually vigorously disagreed was a, a, a Polish non-Jew. He was not Jewish individual, but came from a conservative um, family, right-wing family, uh, linked to the British establishment, and he was vigorously arguing with me during the discussion. Whereas um, the, this, many of the students were very attentive uh, to, to the, the, what I was saying and asked questions, and we had a very good um, back and forth. And actually, they pretty much accepted um, the, the points. So. This was in 2008. Uh, there's, a, there's a video somewhere. If I find it, I might, uh, you know, upload it if I, uh, and so on. But this is from in the archives. In the archives. <laughs> yes. okay. So that, that's all, as, as far back as 2008, I went public with those kinds of discussions. Um, but most people request me to do 
usually other topics, and it was only in light of the 2021 uh, kind of bombardment of Gaza where I was asked to reprise my uh, my, my role in speaking about um, Gaza and the Palestinians in a, an academic setting again and do a course on it, uh, kind of using all my I say, two decades of research wow. in it to, um, uh, to kind of, well, educate Muslims with the tools they need in order to advocate for Palestine and refuse yeah. those arguments. I certainly think you're one of the most educated, informed people on, on the subject around, I must say. Um, so, well, thank you for that. Um, you've produced some slides. Um, here's the first one, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So basically, it's just everyone kind of sees the image, uh, the, the famous image of uh, Palestine um, with ever decreasing areas of yeah. what you might call um, Palestinian uh, sovereignty. Uh, although, technically speaking, they, they, are, they don't have sovereignty even over those areas that you see on the far right there in green. Uh, but it's a typical image. The question that I think many people have, and many, well, many people don't necessarily ask, is how did we get to the image we see on the right? And mm. how did it start from what was on the left and go to, to what's on the right? And what is the actual condition of Palestinians that they're in, even in that image on the right? And these are kind of questions which are very important. I know people might think, well, it's, no, uh, it's not relevant to look at history uh, because oh, shouldn't we deal with facts on the ground now? But in a sense, a lot of the disputes are, uh, you could say, disputes over property and land. And anyone who has property knows that if you don't have historical documents showing that the property belongs to you, i.e. Right, like, for example, a deed or what have you, uh, then people can deny your ownership of it. In fact, a lot of historical debates and discussions are over property rights and over um, native rights and so on and so forth. And so we're forced to go back into history and to work out uh, what happened, what were the injustices that were committed uh, in order to inform our solutions today. So really, I wanted to kind of equip everybody with a, a quick, you could say, well, I'm going to say quick, relatively speaking, an A to Z of yeah. what happened since uh, the British invasion or just a bit before the British invasion of Palestine in the, in the previous century until now so that they can... Uh, make sense of all the kind of terms and treaties that are thrown about and uh, the events in the past that are re referred to by both uh, pro-Palestinian activists, academics, as well as uh, Zionist activists and polemicists. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, let's uh, get started. So, um, okay, uh, a brief a brief history of Zionism. Um, now, Zionism actually is, is a little more complicated than most people imagine. Um, Theodore Herzl never invented uh, Zionism. The idea of Zionism um, goes back actually uh, a few centuries before, uh, maybe to, or I suppose you could say till about the, the 18th to 19th century, um, with Christians or Europeans who talked about, not non-Jews, um, who talked about uh, putting the, bringing the Jews back to the, the land of Palestine. Uh, this was an era of nationalism, an era of the idea that uh, every ethnicity in the world uh, should have should have a place uh, for them that is a nation state that represents their culture and ethnic group. Uh, I could go into that, you know, like for example, Napoleon Bonaparte was actually, um, when, the, when, when he was, you know, conquering Egypt, after he conquered Egypt and he was moving into to Palestine, he didn't, wasn't successful in conquering Palestine. He was pushed back, but uh, he was one of the first people that 
came up with an idea, the idea or the declaration. He made a declaration. He wanted to make a declaration to invite Jews to come back to uh, Palestine, uh, quote unquote. Um, so this idea of Zionism ironically starts with non-Jews, um, and a lot of these are Christian. You could say Christian Zionists. Yeah. But um, Theodor Herzl is renowned for really giving Zionism its political success um, and kind of sharpening its vision. So Theodor Herzl is not a religious Jew. He doesn't believe in God. He's an atheist. Yeah. Um, he thinks the Bible is full of fables and, and stories. He doesn't really, he, there might be some history to it, uh, but he isn't really concerned so much with uh, the literal uh, truth yeah. of the Old Testament or the Tanakh. He's concerned with um, the legend of it and how it forms a cultural ethos for Jews. So he basically um, wrote a number of works on what you might call the Jewish question, where he was concerned of about Jewish minority rights in Europe. Uh, the pogroms. Oh, I, was, I was confused when I hear this term, the Jewish question. What is the question? <laughs> Seriously, what is, <laughs> what, what, what is the question that this is summarizing in like three words? I don't get it. I mean, is it like what do we do with the Jews? Is that what it means? Is, what's the subtext or the the fuller meaning of that phrase? Well, uh, it's a it's a typically you could say um, European phrase at the time, yeah. which was whenever there was uh, ethnic tensions or issues, they would raise a question. So the Ottomans faced, um, you know, the, the, the Balkans questions on a number of its territories, and then eventually that was used to support these territories to secede from the Ottoman Caliphate. Uh, of course, we see that many uh, anti-Semitic uh, Europeans. Um, were talking about Jews being a minority that didn't integrate, that had different customs and culture, and they were raising the, the issue of the Jewish question. And Theodor Herzl, right. in a sense, um, agreed to a, a degree, not with their anti-Semitism, but rather with the question as to whether Jews could truly be accepted into Europe. And yeah, whether the Jewish question means like the Jewish problem. Uh, so I'm just trying to phrase this in a way that is different phrasing. So... These Euro anti-Semitic Europeans, like obviously Hitler in Mein Kampf, you know, he's he's problematizing the Jews uh, as a, a, a as something to be dealt with. So the Jewish question is the Jewish problem: what do we do with these people? And so his solution was uh, obviously a very hostile one, but Theodor Herzl's one was more positive to find uh, somewhere it was feasible in the world, somewhere where they could actually live without being persecuted. I guess would that be. Yes, in a sense, some people might say he was playing up to um, anti-Semites, um, making the argument to them that it's in their interest. If they feel that there's a, there's a Jewish problem, they should support Jews finding a nation state uh, right. elsewhere uh, for right. themselves, where they have sovereignty for themselves. And so he wrote the book, The, the, the Judenstaat, uh, it was in 1896, which was where he laid out the idea that the only way that Jews could ever be respected in the world is if they had a state for themselves mm. because without the state they're viewed as uh, as, as kind of stateless uh, kind of a problem quote-unquote from from the perspective of those who uh, well he's mostly talking about the european context they're they're almost like vagrants they, they're just stateless individuals that uh, kind right. of uh, live in different european countries and they can never truly be part of the european country so he was arguing that kind of angle to both get support from, ironically, anti-Semites. They say, look, if you want to solve the Jewish problem, you know, you should support us getting a nation state for ourselves. Yeah. 
And but at the time, even in that that book, he hadn't settled on the idea of whether it would be uh, Palestine. Mm. He, it, for him, it was acceptable to be in any decent country that, that could accept kind of settlement and could be uh, relatively financially viable. Um, Argentina was mentioned in, in that book as an, as an alternative, as well as Palestine. And they each had pros and cons, and he kind of discussed them. But he didn't settle on any, any decision. He left that for a decision of um, of kind of Zionist, uh, fellow Zionists to kind of uh, discuss and come to a conclusion over. Now, what he truly is famous for is for founding, founding the Zionist Congress, right. the, the World Zionist Congress, um, which is interesting because at the time there was a difference of opinion amongst Jews across the globe, um, Jews in uh, North America, uh, many of them who, who adopted a liberal program and paradigm even publicly renounced the idea of of having a mosaic or a christian a, a jewish state um in the sense of a, a religious sense and they said that they're happy to be americans and they have all their rights after the emancipation of the jews that came with the enlightenment and with um, states implementing enlightenment ideals um but what he what he does is though he doesn't have a particular solution in mind what he does his um his stroke of genius you could say um it was to just create a talking shop for different uh, kind of Jewish movements and ideas. People had ideas of Zionism which were different to what you might imagine, like cultural Zionism, the idea that they uh, they want to um, create a modern identity for Jews uh, which kind of solidifies uh, a, a, a type of Jewish cultural feeling across the world um, to, inf to prevent assimilationism from removing you know, Jewish culturalness, what have you, mm -hmm. uh, rather than a state. They didn't really look at a state per se, but he brought all these different people on board to a, to a talking shop and say, what solutions can we find to the problem of persecution of Jews uh, in Europe, basically? And I say in Europe because whenever he talks about the Middle East, and especially when he talks about Muslim, the Muslim world um, and the Ottoman Caliphate, he actually praises them for their treatment of Jews, that they tend to be tolerant and they don't have the kind of problems. But he's a European Jew and his context is Europe. So, for, And of course, the majority of Jews in the world live were, were European Jews or Western Jews, because uh, those were living in North America, but from European extraction, Ashkenazi Jews, as they're called. Mm. Uh, that was the, the situation they faced, anti-Semitism, discrimination, and bigotry. And of course, mm. these were you know, a really significant phenomena at the time. Most people don't, don't fully appreciate. And this is, this is before, you know, this is like 50 years before um, you know, Hitler and German Nazis and so on and so forth. Anti-Semitism was a, a long-standing problem in the mm. West. So anyway, creates it creates the, the, uh, the Zionist organization. I, I, I want to say that you, you're right, just to stress what you just said. It, it was a phenomenon in, in the West, but it was a Western issue. It was a Western virus, if you like. It wasn't, it didn't come from the Muslim world. It's not an Islamic issue, but Muslims and Christians and Jews coexisted peacefully for centuries in the Ottoman Empire under Islamic rule, of course. That's very well documented and not disputed. It is particularly European slash Western virus that uh, was agitating this. Uh, it, it wasn't, there's nowhere else in the world there was a problem. Yes, indeed. Um, now, I, I want to caveat because um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm quite pedantic, uh, which is, 
yes, there were situations in 1,300 years of, of Islamic history where you had um, sometimes there was communal tensions, tensions in some areas of, of a very vast Islamic world. And so if you want to if you want to pick where there was sometimes there was resentment because many uh, Muslims uh, might have been poor at, in certain situations and circumstances and they resented um, the Jewish community, uh, you know, having a lot of wealth, which they were having light taxes. They were wealthy. They were um, right. enjoying um, very much good lifestyles within Islamic rule. But I want to always stress that you, you'll never find, you're, you're, apart from one um, case of a, of a heretical Muslim sect, but, but you'll never find state-sanctioned pogroms or yeah. persecution of Jews in Islamic history. Yeah. Uh, generally, that is unheard of. Um, right. and, and in fact, whenever there, there was a breach of, of Jewish rights that occurred, um, the Muslim authorities were usually quite um, uh, severe and harsh on the perpetrators who breached the contract of Dhimma. Um, the contract of, well, Dhimma means a covenant, I suppose, the contract of the covenant between uh, a, a non-Muslim community uh, of the book, people of the book, and Muslims. So when that covenant has been violated by any Muslim, the, the authorities tend to be quite harsh on the Muslim violators for breaking the, the covenant of protection to uh, their non-Muslim, uh, you know, uh, kind of neighbours and so on and so forth. So anyway, I just want to give that little that little caveat. If I clarify that, it's a fascinating contrast. I think people don't often people in the West don't often realise this, but yeah, thank you. So. Um, uh, in in this in this Congress in this talking shop, uh, as they begin to um, start to settle on the idea of, uh, of of maybe Palestine being a place, but also Argentina, uh, they need a place to, to to pool funding, and so they need to, to develop um, you know funding mechanisms that the Congress could actually direct. So one of these institutions they set up is the Jewish National Fund at the fifth Zionist Congress. Uh, but what you also see is that they also will set up um, a, um, the, I'll just pick it out for you, sorry, they also did the Jewish Colonial Trust here, which is the first Zionist bank that was, that was created. Mm -hmm. I, I often point out because many Zionists will argue that, they say, oh, we're not colonial settlers. Uh, Zionism isn't a settler colonialism. And yet, well, um, called the the first Jewish colonial bank, I mean, or trust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's even called that. So it's a hint, hint. Uh, yeah, uh, was it if, if it was? It looks like a duck. It cracks like a duck. It, it introduces uh, itself as a duck. Walks <laughs> like a duck and swims like a duck. It probably is a duck. Yes. <laughs> Despite um, anyone else saying it's not a duck. <laughs> not a duck. Yeah. Now at this time, the uh, scientists were open about what they were doing which is they're going to set they're going to settle an area and they're going to it's going to create a colony um, they're going to create colony, they're going to colonialize take over a land um and populate it with ideally a jewish majority such that it can become a a jewish state um, so a democracy but democracy requires a majority if you want to declare democracy to be a uh, representing an ethno-nationalist state of one particular ethnicity so this is where the ideas develop that well what we need to create as, as zionist is a, a jewish majority in a piece of land which we will have sovereignty over uh, and make it into a democracy um, and this is where they at the first ever zionist congress they adopted the basel program um, which basically um, aims for of establishing for jewish people a state and this is 
uh, where they settle on the idea of it must it will be in Palestine, um, whereas previously they had uh, looked at other options, um, including um, Argentina and all other places. There was even options considered to be in in North America too, in America itself, the United States of America, to be more exact. That would have been interesting, yeah. Gosh. Uh, but that never that never uh, panned out. Uh, America is always fully supportive of um, of, uh, of homeland for Jews, except in its own territories, <laughs> of course. It's very, very generous of them to uh, yeah to say that yeah yeah. Um, and of course, this is where Theodore Herzl declares that um, the Basel program uh, was at that time. He'd said, "I founded the Jewish state." He felt like this this. Uh, kind of agreement uh, was arrived at that it will be Palestine. This was where um, the Jewish state had been founded. And he said that maybe in five years, maybe certainly in 50 years, and uh, you'll see you'll see this. And rather eerily, it was 50 years from that point in time that the United Nations will declare the partition of Palestine um, for a Jewish state. Uh, so that's quite eerie, actually. Um, okay. So their plan was this, at this juncture, the Ottoman Caliphate controlled Palestine. So what was their, their plans? They couldn't, they're not going to make an invasion force because oh, the Ottomans don't have an army and Ottomans are there. So initially... Just to, just to confirm, so this was a Muslim-controlled, uh, Muslim-ruled uh, area, part of the Ottoman Empire, where Christians and Jews and Muslims, of course, uh, peacefully lived together uh, at that time. There was no ethnic cleansings, no attacks on Palestinians, obviously. It was a very different, peaceful, dare one say it, civilized civilization at that time. Uh, I, I just stress this because the contrast to what's literally going on as we speak couldn't be greater. Now we have uh, literally an ethnic cleansing, the entire destruction of, 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 a, of the Gaza area uh, flattened. You can, we've all seen the terrible pictures as if, it reminds me of Dresden or Berlin during the Second World War, where where the RAF and others literally deliberately flattened the whole city. Um, that's the only historical comparison I can think of. And that's happening now. Extraordinary contrast between Muslim rule and what's happening today, in, to, to my view. Oh, yes. Um, and inshallah, we'll go more into that when you'll see um, uh, that. I mean, okay, it's not in the presentation, but um, in in part two, you might see. Um, okay. I, will, I will mention um, that actually, even early Zionists like Ben Gurion, uh, who would later become the prime minister of the, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, mm -hmm. actually praised and marvelled at the Ottoman system of how it would maintain peace between different ethnic groups and communities, and how it would have a this this autonomy granted to all these different communities. Yeah. And at, at this early juncture, um, the Zionists didn't know exactly how they would get sovereignty in Palestine. But the first step was they would need to send um, Jews to Palestine and begin populating it and getting a right. significant majority in that land. Mm. So they began making purchases of land um, and uh, settling Jews from East Europe, from Russia, where they were facing uh, pogroms, um, into into Palestine. Now, okay, you know, Ottomans caught wind, caught wind of this of a political project, and they had already faced problems with the Balkans when there was uh, secession uh, based on the these this new thing called nationalism. 
Uh, so they did try to uh, limit uh, immigration into Palestine, but they said to, to any Jews escaping persecution, you're welcome to go to any part of the Ottoman lands, um, but not to concentrate in Palestine. Uh, and because, as I said, they were worried that it would, it would then create a, a potential secessionist conflict and they were having trouble trying to maintain uh, the, the integrity of the caliphate as it was. Um, due to all the uh, kind of foreign powers scheming and planning and plotting against it. Anyway, so initially there was immigration. Immigration actually came in two waves during Ottoman times, uh, purchasing land and settling. They, so they found ways ar around uh, the, the Ottoman bloc. They just go into the Ottoman lands in Turkey, what have you. They just move and just walk to, the, <laughs> to Palestine because it's not like there's going to be internal borders or block or uh, checkpoints. Oh. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Muslims really didn't monitor or, or uh, do anything really to, to stop it. Um, but um, what ah. we see is uh, kind of prior to now, you know, World War One really kicking off. Um, we see the British did an ethnographical map of the areas of Palestine um, to look at really what was uh, the, you know, the, the land of the Muslim world and so on and so forth uh, to map them out. And this is where we get some information about where the Jewish communities were located at this point in time. Mm. Now, this is not just areas where uh, there was obviously Jewish communities from before the recent immigrations, because they were Palestinian, we call them Palestinian Jews, or they're called Palestinian Jews, those who lived in the land um, with um, the fellow Palestinians for, for centuries. This was also uh, this now this map includes now the recent communities, the recent um, communes that were set up um, from East European Jews and so on and so forth uh, to settle. Uh, they were settled in a few only, only a few areas here. You see seven kind of major areas here, uh, and at that time, even despite there was two waves of immigration, the Jews only represented six percent of the total population of the area of Palestine at that time. Now, um, World War One obviously kicks off, and uh, the British know that in order to defeat the Ottomans, they need a little help, um, and they need the help from any angle or place they can they can get it from. Uh, one of the people that they solicited are the um, the Arabs of Arabia, um, more specifically Sharif Hussein, uh, who was controlling the areas of, of Mecca and Medina and they asked him to revolt against the Ottomans. In return, they promised him, and we'll get to that in a second, but they promised him that um, once they've defeated the Ottomans, uh, they could maybe create a new a Arab caliphate uh, and give sovereignty of the lands uh, quote, quote, back to Arabs. Uh, so they used racial or ethnic uh, incentives, uh, which is obviously, as you know, is... Um, outside the ken of how of the Muslim mindset, uh, yeah. of course. Uh, so it's T.E. Uh, Lawrence, of course, is Lawrence of Arabia, uh, famously, and uh, that's how he's usually known. And there's an amazing film made of him, which won lo lots of Oscars. actually really worth uh, watching. It's an extreme, extremely amazing film, even though Lawrence of Arabia is the hero in that. And, of course, for many Muslims, obviously, he's not a hero because he, he uh, conspired to destroy the Ottoman Empire. Oh yes, um, and as I said, he had he was he had, was he was fully aware of what he wanted to do. 
um, as you can see here, um, he describes that the Arab revolt, which they are fomenting, so he's a British agent that's sent to work with the Arabs, um, of, uh, or Sharif Hussein's rebellion to be more precise, um, that it will be beneficial for them to break up the Islamic bloc. So that was the, the purpose, was to break up the Islamic bloc, bloc to disrupt the Ottoman Empire, and also because the new states that they were going to create, it wasn't going to be this one continuous state that Sharif Hussein might have imagined the British would, would give him, but rather they were going to create a, a number of, as it were called a political mosaic of, of multiple factions, multiple smaller states that would be, you know, jealous principalities incapable of cohesion. Wow. So they would be focusing on their own uh, power, their own, uh, interests and they would be incapable yeah. of unity. So the, the Muslim uh, or the Islamic bloc be broken up into smaller, weaker states which only care about themselves. And it's quite sad uh, that this is exactly what happened. Um, yes. But it should be important for Muslims to know that this was always the intention uh, behind, uh, the, you could say, uh, Western designs in, in the region was to break up uh, the, the unified bloc and make, make smaller, easy to manipulate, easier to control, uh, was it jealous principalities. We don't go to modern politics, but one could argue that we see that precisely that in the world today. In, in these oh, yeah. tiny yes, states. They were quite successful. Yeah. Okay, uh, so this was um, the, the promise that was given, uh, you could say, to um, Sharif Hussein. So it's called the, the Mahan Hussein Correspondence. Um, after Colonel Colonel Sir Henry McMahon, uh, who was the British High Commissioner to Egypt, so the offer to Sharif Hussein was, uh, and this was in in letters and, and uh, correspondences between 1915 and 1916, uh, that in return for Arab support, um, the British would gift um, him all of those territories that you see there. Wow. As to whether the British were really going to do so is a different question. We certainly know that yeah. the British um, uh, funding of the Saudis and giving them weapons and so on and so forth indicated that they weren't going to give Sharif Hussein everything because that includes um, Saudi-controlled territories. But so the, the lesson here, there's a lesson that the world has learned the hard way, the Muslim world anyway, is, is how duplicitous uh, the British were promising various people contradictory things uh, to further the, the, the Britain's own perceived self-interest, uh, but the lying and deception and duplicity is is something that is a great uh, blot on on Britain's history. Uh, it's a great shame uh, and a great scandal, and and it's still reverberating today uh, in the mistrust between Britain and the rest of the world because of the way we behaved when we had power. I mean, real power, not like now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason I, I, I bring this up, um, and it's, it's not irrelevant uh, to the discussion about Palestine and um, Israel, yeah. is because uh, the argument presented by Zionists is that the Balfour Declaration is a legal document, a legal agreement that Britain must honor and therefore give them a national homeland in Palestine. But uh, if you really want to go by legal agreements, this legal agreement. Well, there's an argument. They're trying to say it's not illegal, it's not legal, but it's an agreement between, between the British government or representative of the British government and Sharif Hussein. This would also count as a document that would be considered um, in in a legal context as a promise by the British to give Sharif Hussein all that land. And as you can see, there's no 
um, separate part of, you know, Palestine hasn't been excluded from that, but included there. Only the blue bit was denied, Sharif was saying, because that was promised to the French. Right, the French. Okay. All right. Um, so very, very kind of uh, quick summary of what happened. So January 1915, the Ottomans actually begin an offensive to take Sinai, which was normally under British control, and to block the Suez Canal as part of the war effort. Um, this, uh, they had some success uh, going up to uh, Romani, which is just, uh, which is on the, on the, on the, the orange cross on the left there. And uh, they held it for some time, but then the Arab revolt begins in June 1916, which diverts a significant amount of Ottoman troops to the Hijaz uh, just to uh, just to deal with their hit and run attacks, their guerrilla warfare, and so on and so forth. So this then leads Ottoman armies to be weakened, and by August 1916, Allies score their first kind of counterattack victory against the Ottomans, begin to push the Ottomans back from the Suez Canal and eventually uh, to, to Gaza. Um, yeah, so, uh, and we see that in between now, this, now the, the British hadn't yet conquered Palestine yet. They hadn't yet taken over Jerusalem or taken over um, uh, the, the areas that would now be the mandate of Palestine. But during this time, uh, we see that uh, there was, now this was kind of coordinated by um, Lord Walter Rothschild, who's uh, was a very, very rich family, if anyone's heard of the Rothschilds, they're quite, um, quite well known, uh, coordinated by the Rothschilds, uh, two Zionist negotiators, uh, Chaim Weizmann, the, who would have played a pivotal role in Zionist uh, politics and um, the state of Israel later on, as well as Nahum Sokolau, um, both negotiate with Britain, uh, Lord Arthur Balfour, to in return for a number of benefits, um, the British would support uh, Jewish claim to the land of Palestine once the British took it. So the British hadn't even taken it yet. <laughs> We're already promising it um, to, uh, to to create a, a... Now, here's the issue. A Jewish national home, but it didn't say a Jewish state. And this would be an area that of contention later on. So uh, always, always pay attention to the precise use of wording in um, uh, British diplomatic communications. Especially this, as has been described as a legal document, obviously the wording is, is absolutely crucial. Yes, um, as we'll see, this becomes the basis for the, the, uh, the, the Reno, San Reno conference, which we'll, we'll get to in a, in a second. Um, mm -hmm. Sanremo conference, sorry. Uh, so we see uh, then, now after this, the Balfour Declaration, but the Balfour has been made, and the Balfour Declaration um, is something which caused some consternation amongst um, some of the, the Arabs who have been revolting um, with against the, the Ottomans. Um, uh, but was kind of way the way. So although you have to worry, worry about that, we'll, we'll deal with all this when once we've, we've won the war. Uh, they're kind of placated to some right. And despite the fact that they were like quite concerned, oh, wait a second, though, we're going to have negotiations or, or what? Um, so General General Allenby defeats the Ottomans um, in November 1917. He enters Jerusalem on the 11th of December 1917. Uh, we see on that map that the, the, the British advance on the left and on the right, you see uh, the kind of the uh, Arab 
forces from the Hejaz fighting uh, the, the Ottomans in from behind and attacking their supplies and so on and so forth. So it was they were hit for two fronts and the Ottomans had no chance from uh, being attacked from two directions, even though uh, they quite heroically held off um, the British, who actually had a numerical superiority against the Ottomans in, in, this, re in this region, maybe oh, three to one, perhaps. Um, so the Ottomans actually quite heroic, but they couldn't face being hit on two fronts. Mm. Um, after Jerusalem fell in December 1917, um, we see that uh, the Ottomans in October 1918 eventually sued for peace and withdrew from the region. Uh, so that's that's there. Okay, now we're going to fast forward a little bit. This is after World War One, picking up the pieces. Uh, the San Remo Conference is convened uh, by uh, principal Allied powers. Uh, somehow Japan's included. Uh, the, the, it was considered to be a world power at the time as well. And they agreed to implement the mandate of Palestine according to the agreement set out in the Balfour Declaration. Now, this is where the Balfour Declaration gets more formal legal recognition because it, it enters into uh, the, uh, the uh, as, as part of the official mandate of Palestine agreed by the League of Nations now, the newly created League of Nations. Supposedly an organization which is a predecessor to, to the United Nations to create world peace and prevent um, uh, wars, you know, disastrous wars from reoccurring. And of course, we all know how successful that was. Yeah, not very. <laughs> now, yeah. uh, again, the reason why I mentioned San Remo Conference and of course the mandate of Palestine is that that, that legal document um, and also the kind of the chart of the League of Nations, these, this will be used uh, later on by from both sides, both the you know, pro-Palestinians and Zionists, and even today is used today in legal discussions. I won't go into that because we'll save it for the next uh, the second part. Uh, but it's an important document which Zionists rely on, relied on to argue that they have a right to um, the land of Palestine. Uh, but Palestinians argued in response that were actually. The document specifies the right to self-determination of the peoples there, and they are denied that right in Palestine. So, um, but we'll get to that discussion in another part, in the second part, inshallah. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, what most people don't realize is that the, the mandate of Palestine, so, so basically after the British takes over, took over uh, Ottoman lands, they created mandates in different regions. This is when they created these new countries that didn't exist before as a separate, as, as nation states or what have you. Uh, we had Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. Um, so French were in control of Lebanon and Syria as, as mandates. Um, British were in control of Iraq. Uh, the mandate of Palestine was actually everything you see here. Um, I don't know if you can see my mouse cursor. Can you see my mouse cursor? Or you... No. It doesn't, it doesn't oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there I was like circling with my mouse cursor all this time. <laughs> like... oh, really? No, we can't see it, unfortunately. Please okay. like um, well, anyway, just imagine a, a mouse cursor. Uh, <laughs> imagine a mouse, okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, so it's actually both uh, Jordan and, um, uh, and, and Palestine. And at the time, Jordan was called Transjordan. But now this, this is, the reason why I mentioned this is actually quite important is that the mandate of Palestine has, was always actually this entire area. It was 
only a special uh, member by the British government that decided to award um, Transjordan to that the the right hand right part the, the east side of the um, Palestine the Mandir Palestine um, to the Hashemites that it decided to make an exception uh, so it made a formalized exception to the League of Nations it was accepted that while the whole area is still called the Mandir Palestine and will be called the Mandir Palestine to continue continuing until its its determination of the mandate. Um, the east side would be exempted from the, uh, the it, it being used to be the creation uh, the area that we well, upon which we created the um, the national home for for Jews. So Transjordan will be exempted from uh, that promise, which was accepted. Now Zionists protested this, saying, "No, no, we want this. This is the whole land. It's like this is this is the whole mandate of Palestine. It should apply to the whole mandate of Palestine." And some Zionists today will still argue that um, the east bank of the Jordan River, yeah. uh, which is just just west of Amman, there, it yeah. is 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 actually belongs to was promised to them and belongs to them, and they uh, right. want to uh, to see that. Uh, given to to the state of israel i was literally just there a couple of months ago standing on the east side in jordan on the uh, on the river jordan and uh interesting for in imam where, where i stayed you can actually see jerusalem at night you can see the lights of jerusalem uh, at night on the horizon as about 40 kilometers away so it's it's, it's actually very close um to yeah okay um the, the at the Treaty of Lausanne, the dissolution of the, of the Ottoman Caliphate occurs, um, and all, uh, sorry, not, not at the Treaty of Lausanne, but the dissolution of the Caliphate occurs in 1924. But at the Treaty of Lausanne, which is signed in 1923, uh, the, Turkey, as it will become called, uh, agrees to relinquish all claims to former Ottoman territories. So this is where now uh, people will say this is where the formal handover of the legal ownership of these lands are given towards the Allies was the British and the British mandate of Palestine begins. Um, this is where you'll see uh, that uh, the, the the Palestine citizenship order uh, was issued in 1925 um, but the mandate kind of begins on 14th of May 1948 uh, which is where you'll so, sorry um, uh, so the mandate begins on the 1925 uh, sorry the 1st of August. Uh, this is where you'll see uh, that the, the, that the, the mandate of Palestine becomes a state, you could say, uh, the government with a government with citizens. Everyone that lives there is a citizen of the mandate of Palestine, uh, and it's called a state. It's a state of Palestine. The mandate is still a state, even though it's, let's say, watched over by the British. Uh, but it's still a state, and everyone has his citizenship there. This will be very important for arguments going forward. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, uh, because. Uh, you could argue today, and, and you know, we'll stay for the second part, of course, but you could argue today that basically, um, if everyone was a citizen of the Mandate of Palestine uh, back then, that everyone that lives in the Mandate of Palestine right now, today, uh, should all have equal citizenship as they did back then. Right? Um, the reason why you might think, uh, so you might think, well, okay, why is that? Is that controversial? Well, it is to Zionists because uh, Arabs outnumber Jews in the land of Palestine uh, both today as they did back then. And what you'll find is that Zionists are actually 
actively opposed to equal citizenship for all Arabs in the mandate of Palestine, uh, along with Jews, because that means that Arabs are the majority. And if you have a democracy, that means that the government's going to be a majority Arab government, even if it's only today 51%, um, if you don't include all the people, all the uh, refugees and their rights of return. Uh, if, it, if you include them, it'd be even more. Uh, so this is very important. So the mandate of Palestine started out with everyone having equal citizenship um, as part of the, the government of Palestine, the, the state of Palestine. And I think you've, you've posted up in your Twitter, you know, pictures of um, coins and uh, to drain, uh, uh, kind of drain lids and things like this, you know, with the you know, government of the state of Palestine on it, basically. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, um, because it was mentioned in the Mandate of Palestine, which is uh, the the Jews would could create a kind of quasi-government uh, organization which the British would liaise with and work with called the Jewish Agency, which was led by a Jewish executive. Um, the reason why I mention this is that this um, was to organize the activities of, of Jews in Palestine. Uh, it was to form a type of administration for them. It made... The, the new Jewish immigrants coming in um, form part of an organized community, even though they weren't formally a separate state, almost like a state within a state um, with the approval of the British. Uh, the Arabs never had or were given an institution that was recognized by the British that had the same uh, uh, kind of uh, legal relationship with the British government. So you had informal arrangements, you, the, the, but the Arabs of Palestine, who at this point in time, most of them, villagers and farmers and so on and so forth, uh, they had no ability to politically organize. Uh, they had to learn it, uh, but even then they were divided. There was no officially recognized institution uh, that would liaise with the British government or have sway with the British government. And this led to why the Palestinians were unable uh, to deal with, um, with what would later become, I suppose, the State of Israel, but uh, would later become um, organized militias and forces by, that were not Zionist militias and forces, they, they had no chance to resist them because even though they were the majority, they were disorganized and they had no no institutions they could rely on. Uh, as also the fact they had no money coming from outside, from banks and institutions coming from abroad like the Zionists uh, did. And so they were at the greatest advantage even though they were the majority. Okay. So now we're going to fast forward from 20, 1925 to 1936. There, were, um, there was discontent amongst Arabs, there was discontent, um, there was uh, rioting and so on, as the Palestinians caught wind that, you know, unlike their, their, their neighbours in Jordan, Iraq and Syria, that they would not be getting a state of their own in their own land, despite the fact that they are the majority of people there. Uh, and this caused them to be very um, well upset, to say the least, uh, to feel discriminated against, uh, yeah. to feel that they were denied national self-determination uh, because the, uh, the mandate of Palestine, while it did say that their civil rights would not, would not be prejudiced, it didn't give them any political rights. And this omission obviously led to discontent. So the Peel Commission was was um, uh, in, was was put instituted to 
investigate the cause of Arab discontent because it's such a big mysterious uh, enigma. Yeah. And they came with a number of conclusions. They said, um, "Now, here's one of the what was happening." So, uh, I want to go to Algeria. I want to go to um, North Africa uh, to explain some phenomenon. The French government invaded Algeria, it took it over, and it began, began a colonization of Algeria by sending French settlers to Algeria en masse. Uh, it came up to a million. Uh, it, was, it was a very uh, serious attempt to colonize the place and was accepted internationally, not as occupied land, or even as a mandate. No, it was accepted internationally as this is France. Exactly. So wasn't, so it didn't. It didn't, wasn't even a colony, technically, in that sense of France. It was France that they simply gobbled up North Africa and said, "Actually, this is France now." So it wasn't even a colony, like British had colonies. And no one thought that India was part of England, but mm. France in Paris actually saw Algeria as part of France, and it had MPs in Algeria, French MPs that were in in Paris in the Senate and so on. So it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. One of the things that people don't didn't realize um, when looking at um, the French occupation of Algeria was now, uh, you know, okay, when France took over Algeria, state land was available for the French, so they would they could sell it to private um, French settlers. But what they'd also do is they'd have French banks and, and French agencies that would buy Algerian lands being put onto the market by Algerians. And sell it only to French people, but but whenever a French person wants to sell their land, they don't they can't sell it to an Algerian. They must sell it to another French person who's mediated by this these institutions. So it was this one way direction of of buying and selling. So Algerians sell their land, and you know these institutions, these French institutions, will pay top dollar for it. And uh, this was seemed fine, but but if a French person in Algeria is selling their land, they can't sell. To uh, an Algerian, they must sell it, but to another French person or to the these French institutions and banks that will buy it and then reallocate it to another French person. So you had this one-way um, procurement of, of land as part of a, a, a colonial enterprise, and it was deemed to be fair because it was buying and selling. Right? They're not the same. We're not forcing anybody uh, to sell their land, uh, although they were selling state land, which was was meant to be. You know, belonging to the state, but they were selling state land. Now, the same thing occurred in Palestine, the exact same thing. Wow. Um, now, you might think, okay, well, okay, buying and selling, and those, the, the people who are, you know, farming the land and they want to sell their land, uh, you know, presumably they, they will get good money for that and they'll find their, their career elsewhere. But that doesn't fully describe the situation that was happening in Palestine. You had tenant farmers. So you'd have a landlord which would own over a big swathe of land and you'd have tenant farmers who were you know, Palestinian farmers farming the land. Um, then the landlord gets offered top dollar by a Jewish national fund or, or a proxy usually uh, to sell the, the land. So they say, okay, this is, this is a good amount. Uh, I don't really even stay here much anyway. Um, sure, I'll sell it and make some money. And then once the land is procured by a Zionist agency, they will then kick out all the Arab tenant farmers and replace them with uh, Jewish tenant farmers, or just yeah, Jewish farmers, I suppose. Um, now, it, if I was to buy a business, or anyone was to buy a business today, and the business has, let's say the business you know, has 50% or Afro-Caribbean workers, and the rest are 
why it's English, because you could say. And they buy the business and they fire all the Afro-Caribbean workers and they only replace them with further, you know, white English workers. We would say that's racist. That's a clear racist policy. Why are you firing only one ethnicity and you're only going to replace them with that particular ethnicity? And what the Zionists were doing was, in essence, they were um, clearing out everybody who was obviously not Jewish, who were turned farmers, and replacing them only with uh, Jewish turned farmers. Mm-hmm. So this was the kind of policy that was happening. This led to high unemployment um, and a, a, a kind of an exodus of Arab turned farmers into towns and cities uh, who ha- were landless because they had been kicked out of the farm they might have farmed for. Uh, you know, uh, for a long period of time, maybe their families even had uh, contracts going back over generations with the landlord family. So this was the first instance of where you might say land um, uh, Arab, Arab farmers being kicked off land. Yes, it wasn't technically they owned it; they didn't, they didn't own it per se. Yes, but um, you know they didn't see it coming, and it was it was on mass. Uh, and it was it's a, it's a racist policy, but the Zionists said it was necessary in order to facilitate further Jewish immigration into um, Palestine. Um, also, the reason for Arab uprisings and and what well, uprising wasn't, wasn't a, a, a full on uprising at this point, but it was a, you know a um, uh, you had of course uh, uh, riots in the twenties and so on and so on and so forth. Um, this led to the British government of the conclusion of the Pill Commission to say we perhaps the best solution is to partition the land. This is the first time you see the discussion in uh, in a formal British con- British government kind of level suggesting that the best solution is to partition the land between Arabs and Jews. Because- I, just, I, just, I, I know it's obvious, I'm stating the obvious here, but here you have a white Northwest European country government deciding the fate of Arabs, Palestinian Arabs living in the Middle East without consulting them, without a democratic mandate, without any kind of consent. Um, so that this is not some kind of objective, unbiased, or independent or neutral process at all. This is uh, a colonizer from thousands of miles away deciding the fate, the outcome, the future of an entire people. And they have no uh, well, you have no right, of course, the, the League of Nations had given them this right. But, of course, it's a colonial thing. It's not like the colonialists controlled the, the machinery. It wasn't uh, truly representative at all. So it's it's still very, very ugly. By today's standards, or by the standards then, it's still very ugly, one, one might argue. Yeah. Um, now, as I said, like in the, in the 20s, there were just maybe, you know, uh, mob riots and things like this. Mm. But it was in 1936 where you saw what was called the Great Arab Revolt. Um, right. And this was where you saw a massive uprising. And so the Pill Commission um, was basically tasked to see what's causing, I mean, what's been causing you know, for the last decade and so um, this gruntlement. But the, the Great Arab Revolt was uh, the... Uh, the, the more serious concern for the British, like why aren't why are the Arabs very upset? What's going on? What could be making them so upset? Mm. Um, and this lasted for about three years. They called the Great Arab Revolt. Um, this was when um, you know, multiple villages and towns, including those motivated by um, uh, kind of governing governing factions within the Palestine, 
the, the, the Palestine, Palestinian peoples, um, argued for a full uprising uh, to shake off the, the British um, and, and kind of gain control of Palestine for themselves. Of course, it, it fails abysmally, but this is where we see the British allow um, Jews to form militias and to be armed. And so then uh, Jews have legally sanctioned, well, uh, initially legally sanctioned militias, but that these militias then don't disband afterwards, but they go on to, to maintain their weapons and train, whereas um, the, uh, the, the Arabs, you might call the Palestinians, uh, they basically don't have um, the, the, the ability to form militias, uh, and, and then they are, again, nowhere near organized. It was a very chaotic uprising. And of mm. course it gets. Um, so the Arab revolt, uh, which mentioned, was brutally suppressed. Um, and the British then reevaluate uh, what the solutions might be required uh, in that land. Uh, they produce a white paper in 1939. Uh, so white paper obviously is, is a, it's a British legal document and it becomes adopted as policy by the British government for Palestine, which recommends limiting Jewish immigration because they cited that there was this the large influxes of, of Jews coming into Palestine from around the world was, uh, was too rapid, too fast. It was causing ethnic tensions on the ground. And also to give some uh, leeway to uh, Arab consent, <laughs> even though you know the Palestinians weren't asked their consent for the yeah. mandate of Palestine to be a Jewish national home at all. But they were given some uh, some consent. Uh, the land sales were prohibited in certain designated regions to um, to agencies like you know, Jewish National Fund or what have you from doing those policies I already mentioned, because many Arabs had complained uh, that this this one way system of once you sell land, um, it will never come back into and never be bought by an Arab again. It will never be offered on the market again. It's not this is not a two way system of, of markets. A one way system. Um, where they seem to always lose, you know, lose um, land, and they can't buy that land back in any way, shape, or form. Um, but more interestingly, the British suggest the solution of a instead of partition, a unitary binational state with equal rights for all. So instead of cutting the land up into pieces, keep the mandate of Palestine. Um, well, the, the the bit that excluding the Transjordan bit, um, but keep the mandate of Palestine as one state, with everyone having equal rights for, for an equal citizenship. The Zionists rejected it, both the limitations on immigration, but also the fact that it should be a unitary state, uh, because they were a minority, and if you give equal rights to the um, to the Arabs in a unitary state, they will be the majority and they will form a majority government in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And the Zionists, you know, well, Zionists don't want democracy when it's, uh, when, it, when it, 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 the, the majority are obviously um, non-Jews. This is, uh, this shows how Zionism conditionally likes democracy, but not when it, uh, well, I mean, and to be fair, I mean, the West is like that in general. I mean, America has obviously overthrown many democratic countries, governments have been elected, uh, in the 20th century because it didn't approve of the outcome, whether it be in Iran or in Chile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I forget the number. It's 50, 60 governments that have been over democratically elected governments. So it's only democracy when the Americans like the outcome. If they don't like it, then you're liable to be overthrown. So in other words, the principle is not there. It's basically uh, 
what the self-perceived interests of the West are. That's the deciding factor, arguably. Yes. Um, and the reason why I mentioned the white paper was is that um, the, the person in leadership, um, as well as or leaderships, uh, the different factions, uh, as well as um, Arab governments were actually approving of the white paper. They said actually they were they were they they were not desiring to kick out Jews from Palestine uh, or remove them or kill them, what have you. They were totally happy to accept a unitary state with everyone given equal citizenship, because mm. this is the land of Palestine for them is is one land. Um, they don't want a border being put up. In there, there's really borders being created around the Middle East as it is. They don't want to have a, a border, especially defined by ethnicity um, and by individuals who are obviously who they perceive as being Europeans because Jews coming from Europe look Europeans and they were speaking European languages. They weren't speaking Hebrew when they were coming from, from Russia or Poland or, or elsewhere or Germany. So uh, they didn't want uh, to cut up their state and they didn't want to see it partitioned. Uh, they wanted to be able to, to walk anywhere they want on their land. And they were totally happy to have a demo democratic system with equal citizenship. At least everyone is uh, on the same level, given the same, uh, on the, on the same, um, have equal platform, basically. Yeah. Now, um, it is roughly at, around this time uh, we see uh, from 1939 onwards, uh, that you see the rise of uh, terrorist groups amongst uh, the, the different Zionist factions. Now, while the, the, the you see one group called or paramilitary defense force, it's called the Defense Force, the Haganah, um, who uh, are where the majority of these kind of Jewish militias coalesce into uh, under the Jewish agency's direction into this informal militia called the Haganah. But you also had um, uh, other uh, groups called like the Irgun and Stern Gang and others. Um, these are quite infamous because these would engage in active uh, terror campaigns against the British. They view the British as betraying them. Now, to be fair, uh, it's not just then. Haganah, the, so the Jewish agency and others argued that the white people was a betrayal of the British promise to them. And what you saw is a beginning of a, an insurgency against the British there. Um, you see uh, the bombings, obviously King David Hotel and destruction of bridges and infrastructure, as well as um, killings of British soldiers starting, starting to occur more frequently, mostly by the Irgun and others and the Lehi as well. Um, in October, 1945, they even unite all together to form the Jewish resistance movement. Um, but it, World War II kind of put stops to the insurgency as they, as they felt that they should um, focus on the, the German Nazi threat well, as a, you know, because British were preferable to obviously the Germans and it's not a good idea to undermine the British um, and leave uh, the land open to German attack. So better to, uh, to put a pause on that until the outcome of, the, of World War II. Um, I think Ben Gurion can even argue that um, he said we will, uh, you know, like fight the, the Germans as if there was no. We will, we will ally with the British, uh, and and even send volunteer forces uh, to to ally with the British forces against the Germans as if there was no white paper. He said so. We will pretend it doesn't exist just mm -hmm. for the sake of fighting the Germans, um, but uh, they will uh, continue to campaign against the white paper and to to resume. 
British uh, to resume Jewish immigration, as well as to resume the project of a of, a, of, of at least some kind of partition um, between an Arab state and a, a Jewish state. Um, now, the white paper established that there would be within ten years an independent Palestinian state, so the whole state would become um, independent. In 1946, uh, there were two plans offered uh, that were, in a, in a sense, uh, halfway houses uh, between partition and creating a kind of federalism or, or autonomous regions within the land of Palestine as, as, a, as, a, as a way to um, uh, placate uh, both sides. Although, the, again, the Arabs and Palestinians rejected that, saying that we don't want partition in the land of Palestine. We want to keep it as one land with equal cool. citizenship for everybody. Really? Now, so this is now this is just after World War Two. Uh, uh, World War Two did change things a lot, um, to say the least. Um, one of them was that there was now a, a massive amount of of Jewish immigrants uh, which were leaving Europe and wanted uh, and, uh, and or had already left Europe, but put in places like Cyprus and others, waiting to to be relocated. And of course, the Allies weren't as um, as so willing to give these Jews asylum, but they want they did want to see if they could be sent to Palestine because again, you know, the, even though the, the West had persecuted and massacred Jews by the millions, they never accept res the responsibility enough to uh, re repair those the problem itself by giving them land or territory in their own lands, but send them off to somewhere else. Um, now the British were stuck between a, a rock and a hard place um, in the sense that they didn't want to inflame all the uh, the regional Arab regimes who were their client regimes. Uh, mm. but also these client regimes were facing pressure from their people. At the same time, they didn't want to uh, renege on their promise uh, to uh, Zionists and the Jewish agency. And so uh, they did uh, what uh, I think the British are famous for when they're stuck in a, in a rock and a hard place, which is they offloaded the problem to somebody else. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, and they gave it to the United Nations. I said, okay, you know what? Uh, we have no authority to give the whole land to one or the other or, or to just give it to both. Uh, we will give it to the United Nations to solve this problem. The two plans that in the various conferences, London conferences, didn't solve anything. No one agrees on, on these, other pl these, these plans. So we're going to give it to the United Nations and they will resolve it for us. We will accept whatever the, the United Nations um, uh come to as a conclusion. Um, now, I, I won't get into the, as I said, what I'm offering everybody here in this brief history of Palestine is like a, uh, a big picture view. There is a lot of detail here, there's a lot of shenanigans. Um, the, the British seem to impede the, the, uh, the UN uh, implementation um, team who, who, who come to implement the partition, they impede them, they, they don't allow them to do their work. Uh, they even move back, or so not move back, so they move forward the termination of the Mandate of Palestine uh, to May, whereas before it would have been a bit, bit later on uh, in, in the year. Uh, this is a different discussion, which I won't go into. But uh, suffice to say, um, the, the United Nations Special Committee in Palestine, which was created in, in May 1947, uh, they passed the idea of partition, despite many protests by the Arabs saying that this is a very bad idea, we don't want this, mm -hmm. why can't you just keep it as a single state? Um, they they uh, 
passed the plan. It was agreed um, by UN General Assembly and, on the, and it was declared on the 29th of November 1947. Now, um, the plan recommended the mandate terminate as soon as possible up to the maximum of the 1st of August 1948, but the British um, <laughs> do it, uh, uh, declare the end of the mandate on the 15th of May and basically skedaddle. Um, <laughs> they, they tried to withdraw. Um, uh, that's a different discussion as to why, but this is what, what happened. So 1947, 29th of November is when the UN declares the partition plan. Now, just so you understand, uh, so Jewish settlement in Palestine by 1948, uh, the, the settlements here are on the right-hand side, as you can see, is where you see that the majority of Jewish settlements. Uh, there was a plan um, by the Jewish agency when it noted when partition was being discussed that the Negev, which is the, the, uh, the desert in the south, um, was going to seemingly be given to the Arabs because there was hardly any settlements there. And so they came up with the 11-point um, plan, which they would quickly establish settlements there so that they could um, claim the Negev. And then it was given to them by the UN partition. Um, what you see on the left-hand side is the, uh, the kind of the rates of of uh, Jewish immigration and how it changes, in essence, the demographic uh, mix of people in the land. So even by 1948, after World War II, after um, a lot of refugees from Europe, Jewish refugees from Europe, Jews still form only 33% of the total population of Palestine. And if you were to grant the whole of Palestine one, as one state, they would be obviously a minority. Um, but even the UN partition plan, uh, which we see here, here's the UN partition plan, oh. uh, which is which is one of those images you see on the, uh, uh, which, which I showed you at the very beginning of this, of this presentation, where you have uh, you know, Palestine being reduced, you know, smaller and smaller, the area of land um, that was for the, the Palestine, so the state of Palestine. Um, even in that area, uh, Arabs were actually 40% of the population. So in the area that's partitioned for the Jewish state, Arabs were 40% of the population. Wow. We'll discuss in the next part, but Ben-Gurion, uh, the uh, kind of head of the Jewish agency, which is the precursor to the Israeli government, um, mentions with concern that how can you have a Jewish state with 40% Arabs? It's mm. too much. Yes, there might be a minority, but that's a very big minority. They'd still have. Yeah. Um, some might say that was a prelude to what would come later. This this uh, noting of concern mm. and uh, his commanders. It's such a. It's a very concerning thing. There's so many Arabs here. <laughs> you know, what? Um, Middle East. Good grief. <laughs> yes, um, and this would lead to uh, the first war in in Palestine, which it wasn't the the Arab Israeli War of that or the, the Israeli War of Independence they called it. This was the civil war in Palestine that began in 1947. So after the resolution was adopted, um, one of the main you could say institutions of Arab leadership, although they weren't a form formally uh, recognized one. And that's at one point even outlawed by the British, the Arab High Committee, the AHC, 
their reaction to the United Nations resolution was to enact a general strike that lasts for three days. So, you know, not to go to work and so on and so forth. At the same time, the Lehi and Irgun uh, intensified their bombing campaigns and uh, terrorist attacks against um, Arab areas. They would chuck grenades into Arab crowds, um, you know, detonate bombs in the streets and things like this. Um, so now this had been going on, but but the point I wanted to make here is even amongst the Palestinians who were because they were disorganized, um, not because, but rather I suppose their disorganization was an evidence of this that there was no uh, organized assault or attack against Jewish areas or cleansing operations by Arabs against Jewish areas at all whatsoever. There was no offensives, military offenses, or um, commanded by any of the Palestinian leadership uh, in Palestine against Jewish areas. So there was no initiation of, of uh, uh, you know, operational level violence by Palestinians, but there was this low level uh, tit for tat uh, kind of uh, uh, attacks where you'd have one person shoot at a bus and then uh, next day, uh, someone throws a grenade into a crowd of, you know, in, a, in an Arabic marketplace. You have this general, this has been, been going on for some time, uh, so it wasn't any, anything new. But what was new uh, was what the Haganah, the uh, military of the Jewish agency, the, the, the precursor to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, quote unquote, um, is they begin to implement, in their own words, um, clearing operations. And this would involve clearing Arab villages. Uh, they would assault Arab villages, and it would just be coincidental, of course, that this would create a mass exodus of Arabs from these villages. You know, because there's a strange phenomenon when you fire mortars um, and you burn houses, the people in those areas tend to run away. It's a strange phenomenon. I don't, I don't know how you can explain it, um, and this led to 100,000 Arabs becoming refugees by the end of March 1948. This is before the war with the surrounding Arab states. This is very important to notice because, in essence, the Jewish agency and the Haganah, um, they launched the clearing operations and they wanted to, to uh, uh, clear out the areas which were uh, in the areas allotted to the Jewish state by the UN um, of uh, secured those areas that they call it, uh, where they were Arab concentrations. So in that graphic you see on the right-hand side, the dark blue represents um, the, the zones of, of Jewish settlement and concentration. And the lighter blue represents where the, these are, it's mostly Arab concentrations. But by the end, well, up to, the, you know, well, I suppose near the end of May, 1948, the following year, uh, you see that these zones had been um, cleared, cleansed, purged, what have you, uh, secured. Now, not all, not all Arabs were expelled from those areas. Um, mm. But by the end of it, um, you saw the percentage that you still have today in the Israel, uh, percentage-wise, which is 20%. So the Arabs went from 40% of the population of those areas to 20%, a more manageable 20% population. It's interesting because uh, I, mean, I wasn't very aware of this, this civil war. Uh, this is before the War of Independence, the Israeli War of Independence in 1948, which uh, I normally think of as involving 
forced migrations, you know, out 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 of Palestine. But this is, it actually began before that with, with what we would say called terrorism. We was these are the terrorist acts by Jewish gangs forcing ethnically cleansing uh, uh, indigenous Arab communities and homelands. Um, I mean, this is a very unambiguous example of terrorism to achieve uh, uh, ethnic cleansing. And yet this is actually before the, the famous, let's say, Israeli War of Independence of 48, which is usually seen as the great forced migration. But uh, as you're pointing out, this actually happened before that. Um, it's a terrible crime. Uh, and it's, it's obviously facilitated and supported, as always, by white Western Christian nations, because they were Christian more so then than they are now. Um, so this is old, old news in a way as well. I'd like to draw your attention as well to, if you look in the, in the, the top of the uh, graphic, um, you'll see uh, on the, 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 there's a, on, the, it's, on this topmost left part, you could say, it, there's, a, there's a blue area that controls the coastal areas and it seems to be kind of penetrating in, in land a little bit with two yeah. prongs, if you, if you yeah. notice that. Yeah. Now, just compare that to the official um, wow. UN partition. So just like this, you see there, wow. and there. Um, uh, there was attempts, now there was, was attempts to actually take over. Now that north part is called the Galilee, the, 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 the central north part up there. And the, um, the Haganah and the Jewish agency, they launched into areas, they invaded into areas which was meant to be given to the Arabs, um, so the Arab states. So they had no compunction in even breaching the UN um, partition yeah. uh, and taking over areas which were meant to be given to the uh, Palestinians for a Palestinian state. So they, they actually took military control over those areas. Uh, and in essence, wherever there was a Jewish settlement, uh, they would seek, seek to link it up um, as, as best as they could within that time. Of course, they couldn't get to all of them. Uh, they didn't want to have disconnected settlements. They didn't want to have Jewish settlements in, remain in the Arab state. Um, they wanted to have a continuous connection of all the uh, the Jewish settlements uh, in one Jewish state, even if that was in on areas that was given to the Arabs, despite the fact that they would later officially declare the state of Israel within the area allotted to them by the UN. They would make that an official declaration, even yeah. though they they were still control they were controlling land that was not part of the partition allotted to the Jewish state. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Again, all this becomes very relevant for the arguments that we made by Zionists later on. That, oh, we don't invade places, we don't take over places, we just defend ourselves. Um, they, they were not facing existential military operations um, at that time, and yet uh, they took over the areas. Now, what they will say uh, is that, well, the, the leadership believed that there would uh, be, or there could be, um, invasions by Arab armies and they wanted to secure all these strategic zones that would be possible invasion routes and things like this. Uh, that would give that excuse. But at that point in time, um, the Arab states didn't indicate they would invade at all whatsoever. Uh, ironically, it was due to the massive influxes of uh, Palestinian refugees kind of swarming out of the of, of Palestines to seek refuge from the barbarity they were facing, and they were facing a lot of barbarity. I won't go into details in this uh, in this uh, presentation. Um, that forced them, their population, their populations demanded the governments do something about it, like save these Palestinians. 
And this was despite the fact the Arab governments were exhorting the Palestinians to not leave Palestine and stay in there. It was, uh, which would become an important point later on um, to, to note when you discuss with uh, Zionists today. Mm. Um, okay, so the Arab-Israeli war, as you know, as everyone knows, that begins in 1948. So this is the following year from the UN declaration, from the clearing operations. Uh, so between April and the 14th of May, the Jewish agency forces had already conducted eight full-scale military operations outside of the area allotted to the Jewish state on the partition. So eight military operations um, against the, the areas of land that was going to be given to the Arabs under the UN partition. Um, Arab states are very concerned, obviously, by this. They, uh, they see that it's getting out of hand. The British aren't doing much. They... they do curb some excesses, but they don't do much to stop the general um, military operations that are occurring of the Haganah. So they issue a memorandum to the United Nations saying that uh, the, Arab, the Arab League will get involved um, to rectify the problem of what's happened to the Palestinians. They cite the massacres that's happened to the Palestinians. Um, the Deria scene becomes a thing. Uh, these are these are um, what well, they have seen, but like uh, uh, sorry, massacres like the Deir um are heard by multiple sources and are se severely concerning for many people outside. The Arab states issue a memorandum to the United Nations that saying that if you're not going to get involved, we have to get involved to save the Palestinians that are being brutalized and massacred. And then they envisioned what would be the solution. The solution didn't say is we need to massacre all Jews, we need to kick out all Jews, we need to expel all Jews. Nothing like this. The mm. memorandum states that the solution is a single state for everybody, equal rights, with a special uh, emphasis on minority rights as well. So that if, if the Jews are worried about being treated as a minority, we'll make sure that there's enshrined in their cast iron rights for minorities. Mm. Partition. You can't have wars for, for land. Uh, and for demographics, it has to be a single state, everyone given equal rights. Mm. This is what is actually said by the Arab League as the basis for their intervention, but there were still debates amongst the, the members of the Arab League as to whether they should invade, uh, as to whether they'd even win, um, because their armies were still brand new, um, many of them untrained apart from Jordan, which the Arab Legion in Jordan was very um, elite. So this was, all, this was what was happening. Um, of course, ultimately, then they face pressure by their populations to uh, to intervene. In the next part, I'll, I'll mention some very um, shocking uh, kind of discourses between uh, Arab diplomats and politicians and, and British um, diplomats when they actually confess that they actually don't want to go into Palestine. Um, mm. They actually have no they're not uh, interested to do so, but they're worried that their own populations would uh, rise up against them if they didn't, <laughs> basically. Oh, amazing. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot more eye-opening stuff. I mean, this is why all I can do is really scratch the surface um, yeah. Yeah. for your viewers. Just, uh, very, very, very I mean, it's, it's extraordinary uh, information uh, you, you're sharing here. Extremely helpful, actually, to get a, a fuller historical context of what's going on, which is usually missing from Western you know, journalism and, and media outlets, so any of this context is simply missing. Yeah, but it's a matter of public record. Um, the uh, the uh, the cable that was sent by the Arab League 
uh, to the United Nations is a matter of public record on the United Nations website itself. You can see everything I've just mentioned there, mentioned to you uh, yeah. on, on that cable. It's there, but people seem to not mention it to discuss like, wait a second, the Arab states didn't want to wipe out all the Jews or, or throw them into the sea. Um, yeah, there was uh, rhetoric by uh, some politicians and so on and so forth, but these very same politicians signed their name under the, the very same cablegram indicating that they uh, they only are interve intervening because of what's happened to the Palestinians. They want to restore law and order in Palestine because it seems to be, for them, a free-for-all of brigandage and, and massacres and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they, um, uh, they want to see a one-state solution come out of it with everyone having equal rights. Uh, mm -hmm. And we'll discuss, uh, I'll discuss in the next part, but there's <clears throat> even... You know, diplomatic discourses between uh, the the you know King Abdullah of Jordan and Golda Meir. This is before she became the prime minister. Um, at that point, she was just part of the Jewish agency government. You know, government you could say would later become the Israeli government, uh, where the, the King of Jordan um, doesn't actually you know uh, doesn't want to get involved, but he wants to take over the West Bank. He says he believes the West Bank should be you know, part of Jordan. Um, he doesn't really want to take over. Um, the, the areas allotted to the, the Jewish state, but if he's ever forced to, he would grant them autonomy. So he was, this was this um, back-channel communication. This was in Golda Meir's memoirs where she talks about this back-channel communication between her and, the, and King Abdullah of Jordan. Wow. So there was no intent to wipe out the Jews and massacre the Jews. And there was none of that, that stuff that becomes the propaganda of Zionists today. Um, in fact, there was, you could say a lot of reticence by the Arab governments to even uh, uh, even go in there if it wasn't for their own populations being outraged by what's happened to their Palestinian brothers. So, um, okay, the war begins. I, I won't go into too much into detail, uh, but there was uh, th there was at one point embargoes on, on arms that was uh, implemented to uh, reduce the conflict. And what most people don't realize is um, the Soviet Union supported Israel. And it, uh, a communist state, Czechoslovakia, supplied Israel, what would become Israel, I suppose, um, uh, its weapons, its, its, its ammunition, you know, thousands of rifles, thousands, millions of bullets, um, even planes and bombers uh, was supplied to them. And people often gloss over the fact that there's a reason for this. It's because the early Zionists, Ben-Gurion and others, they were socialists. Yes, that's right. They were. And the Soviet Union hoped that Israel would become a Soviet, it's not Soviet, but a socialist uh, republic. Yeah. That would uh, be part of a communist bloc. So they wanted to curry favor, favor. And that's why they encouraged all the Soviet states to vote in recognition of Israel when it becomes, when it seeks application into the United Nations. Uh, but of course, obviously, Israel wouldn't become a socialist state as the as the Soviet Union would have wanted, but it's just an interesting um, point of history. Um, another shocking thing, and this is why I find history so fascinating, it's filled with shocking facts, facts that are so counterintuitive to what you would imagine. Uh, the war, the Israeli war of independence, quote-unquote, the first Arab-Israeli war, is often depicted as David versus Goliath, that you have this you know very small state of Israel with its small militia force uh, that's only just now becoming semi-professional, and it was swarmed by these hordes of Arabs with uh, latest equipment and uh, outnumbering them. Um, 
But that's not actually the case. Uh, mm -hmm. The starting strength of the Arab armies in total was around uh, 10,000 troops. But over the course of the war, that increased to 50,000 at a maximum. But the starting strength of the, the Haganah, and then later on the, what would be called the IDF forces, was uh, almost 30,000 troops, three times the amount of, of forces the Arabs sent in there, and with its strength increasing to over 100,000, it was 117,000. So the Arab armies that were sent in to Palestine were always outnumbered by the um, Israeli forces. They were never at any point did they outnumber the Israeli forces they were fighting. Uh, of, also, there's other issues, the other questions which are raised such as the Egyptian army, uh, it's, uh, it was meant, to, or it was believed that it would, it would uh, invade via Sinai, go up to take over Gaza, and go up by Ishtud and all the way to Tel Aviv, which is the, the capital, and would take it over. Uh, it stopped at Ishtud, which was where the UN partition said it was the it was, an, it was the Arab appointed land. If I just can go back and show you on the so um, Ishtud. So if you see Gaza on the uh, the left hand side, um, Ishtud is, is at the northmost point, and there you can see Tel Aviv is just above that. It stopped uh, roughly where the Arab partition was was given by the UN, and it didn't advance any further, even though there was there was for um, a good part of a week, no Israeli forces uh, opposing them. Uh, I, I'm not going to go too much into details, but just remember that um, mm -hmm. the army seemed to just not take over, or not want to take over uh, Tel Aviv for some reason. The Jordanians also wanted uh, at least to just take over the West Bank uh, and of the Jordan River and not go beyond that. Even, as I said, Golda Meir related in her, in her memoirs that she received assurances that the uh, King Abdullah didn't want to take over all of, of Palestine, especially the, the, uh, the, uh, the UN partition areas for the Jewish state. Uh, but he said if he had to, he would give them autonomy. Um, mm -hmm. These are just points that to remember as the audience, um, and this will make more sense when we look at some uh, quotations later on. Okay. Okay, this is just a summary of what happened on the left. Um, the, as I said, uh, you can see the uh, Arab, the Egyptian army went up to Ishtud is there, um, and it stops uh, and doesn't go up, doesn't go up to Tel Aviv. You see the the, the Transjordanian forces uh, and Iraqi forces, and again they just uh, take over the West Bank and they're kind of um, content to stop uh, stop there and uh, and not go beyond. Even though strategically speaking, they could have cut. The Jewish state in two, if they had wanted to, but uh, they didn't. Um, on the right-hand side, you see what happens at the end of the war. Uh, you see the West Bank is taken by Jordan, and Gaza is taken by Egypt, and they form uh, what's called the Green Line, which or the Armistice Lines, which these were not formalized borders, but were rather agreed lines of where. Uh, there would be a, a indefinite ceasefire, and there would uh, be a promise not to uh, violate that ceasefire uh, or continue military operations, um, uh, and uh, it would be subject to negotiation as to what would be the final borders, but it was agreed that there'd be no um, invasions past these borders 
uh, past these, uh, sorry, the armistice lines. So sometimes it's called, the, you, might, you might see it called the green line because it was de demarcated in, in green ink by a guy with a map, you could say, <laughs> a general with a map, uh, had a green pen for some reason, um, and, and hence it was called the green line. But you might see people call it the armistice lines or 1948 um, borders. Uh, sometimes confusingly, it's called the 1967 borders. Um, and now it is now called 1967 borders because prior to 1967, that's what the borders were, or the lines were, so to speak. But mm -hmm. after that, it, it was changed. So sometimes people call it the 1967 borders, or 1948 borders, or the Green Line. It all means the same thing. I hope that's clear. <laughs> clear enough. <laughs> okay. So again, just again, just uh, another map showing uh, the positions and the attacks. Uh, uh, the Lebanese army only only says take a token force. Uh, the Christians were, um, and again, this is not uh, contentious. As in, no historians don't really uh, debate this. Uh, the the uh, some uh, kind of parts of the Christian government were bribed by. Um, the Israelis to stay out of the war. And so only a token force of Lebanese um, people, Lebanese forces came and uh, didn't do much and then they went back into Lebanon. Um, the serious attacks only came from uh, Syria and uh, uh, Jordan and Egypt. Okay, um, aftermath of the war, uh, a further 600,000 more Palestinian Arabs became refugees and they moved from the areas which are now, which which are uh, uh, on the right hand side. You might see Israel proper, just for the sake of just for the sake of nomenclature, we'll call it Israel proper today, um, which is the UN recognized boundaries of Israel. Um, they moved from there into Gaza and into the West Bank. So there was there was displacement of um, Palestinians. We see massacres occurring. Uh, I wanted to highlight this that. When the Jewish settlements uh, were taken over by Arab forces, um, the people were taken prisoner, uh, and they, after the war, they were returned back to Israel, uh, or given to you know to the Israeli state, given back to the Israeli state. Uh, we never saw uh, the type of narrative you, that Zionists say today, which was a war of annihilation of genocide. Uh, because if that was the case, why not wipe out every Jewish settlement and all its inhabitants that you encounter as an Arab army? Instead, following the rules of warfare, uh, they took prisoner um, all the Jewish settlements that they, they came across, uh, everyone prisoner, and then they returned them back at the end of the war. Just a side point, but it's important to note this because it contradicts the uh, simplistic and completely false Zionist narrative of today. And I just recommend this, but I always do, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine by the historian uh Ilan Pape, and it says on the back, the 1948 Israeli War of Independence involved one of the largest forced migrations in modern history. Around a million people at this very time you're talking about were expelled from their homes at gunpoint. Civilians were massacred and hundreds of Palestinian villages were destroyed um, and denied for almost six decades. It Had it happened today, it could only have been called ethnic cleansing. And this is a uh, a very well-researched and impeccably uh, re referenced work. Uh, a, a lot of the uh, uh, sources come from Israeli archives themselves that have just recently been uncovered. So if you want a detailed academic treatment, that's certainly one place to look, I think. Ilan Pape. Yeah. Um, also, um, Benny Morris is not a good historian. Um, and he's, uh, he's a pro-Israeli or Zionist, but uh, even himself has actually documented 
um, quite objective. But to some extent, I mean, I don't know if the problem of debates, but I'm actually quite impressed with the level of, of objectivity he's demonstrated, even though um, some might argue that he's partial in some interpretations, but he likes to portray history as the facts show. So anything by Benny Morris as a historian, um, a book like Righteous Victims is one book. Um, um, uh, the Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem Revisited uh, is one. Um, as well as the first Arab-Israeli war is another book. So these are other books you can look at as well. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, the Armistice Green Line. So just on the right-hand side, you can see the difference in, in red is the difference between the Arab territory that was, the, the territory that was given to the Arabs by the UN partition and what the Arabs finally got uh, at the end of it. So in red would have been what? the UN partition allotted to the Arabs, and at the end of it was what um, was taken by the yeah. Arab states. Yeah, they, they concluded, of course, that uh, there was, as I said, that they invaded uh, or, or came to the rescue of the Palestinians at their own invitation because the Palestinians were unable, they were uh, not organized, not trained, and, had, and were ill-equipped to deal with the um, the, the Haganah forces that had uh, Czechoslovakian weapons trained, many of them, some of them were veterans from World War II, veteran pilots, and so on. They, they, had, they were um, outclassed and uh, out, outfought by more organized opposition, they had no chance. So this is what you see in green is the best at the past that the Arab states could get with the forces they sent. Um, as you could argue, why didn't they mobilize their populations? Why didn't they send more? It's a different discussion for another time, but that was the aftermath. And this is what's called the, uh, the green line. Uh, also with the dates for anyone who wants to read it of where the armistice was signed by the different um, countries. Okay, um, on the 4th of March, 1949, uh, the UN approves the recognition of Israel. And this is quite important. I think how people try to understand how borders work with the UN is the UN kind of takes a snapshot of the country as it is, I suppose, once it exceeds into the UN. So uh, whatever the borders were that the country had once it becomes a UN member, as a kind of almost a form of convention, the UN considers that to be its borders, its, its territory, which is why the UN has never argued that Israel must withdraw from the areas given to the Arab um, partition. Uh, there's some other discussions here about like, you know, are UN resolutions advisory or binding? It's different. I'm not going to get into that, but uh, that uh, is what forms what you might, what is called Israel proper, which I just see um, there uh, on the right. This is what the UN sees when it sees Israel. <laughs> so to speak, it sees this. Uh, the on the right hand side and that's the territory it seems okay <coughs> um, little known fact um, the first Palestine, Palestinian government actually was set up in 1948 um, in on the 22nd of September in Gaza City it was called the all-Palestine government it was in theory uh, had jurisdiction over the West Bank and Gaza itself although West Bank was controlled by Jordan and Jordan uh, didn't care and didn't recognize it, but uh, it had a president, it had um, an administration. So whenever anyone ever says to you, when has there ever been a Palestinian state or government? You could say the Mandate of Palestine is one. The second one is this one, I suppose, the first Palestinian government in 1948. 
Um, some people might say it was a client, it was just a puppet regime of Egypt, I suppose. Um, maybe there's some truth to that, of course. I mean, they certainly uh, only had a nominal jurisdiction. Um, they didn't have much power because it was it was protected by Egyptian military. They had, they had to be there to prevent the Zionists from invading it. Um, but it was uh, nominally dissolved in 1953, uh, and as, as E-Gaza uh, became part of Egypt and Egypt became part of um, a, a bigger bloc for a small period of time called the United Arab Republic. Well, that didn't last long. But anyway, um, that was the first Palestine government that was independent um, of uh, the British, anyway, and the Zionists, if you would like to. If, if anyone asks, when has there ever been a Palestinian government or and state? Well, the mandate of Palestine technically is that because you had citizenship, um, and it was called the government of Palestine, the state of Palestine, there was a mandate state. But this is also another one, if you'd like, <laughs> just so you know. It's just a small thing, a point to mention. Um, okay, it was at this time uh, that you see what you might call the insurgency begins. Uh, Palestinians that are living in Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan begin launching raids into Israel on a on small scale, very small scale basis. Um, one or two people, sometimes five people, sometimes uh, these bands were called Fedayin. Um, so you know, uh, basically those who uh, you know don't fear death, and they began to launch raids into what is called Israel proper, quote-unquote, uh, to maintain some kind of pressure on Israel. One of the key issues was that when the Palestinians left the lands of uh, what is called Israel proper today, because uh, they were running away from being bombarded, shot, killed, houses blown up, uh, or, or threats that this would happen, which was one of the psychological tactics used by the Haganah, they have loudspeakers saying, you know, leave, otherwise you're going to get, you're going to get it. Um, they started to come back, thinking, okay, well, war's over, there's peace, we'll come back to our houses and our villages. And of course, they get stopped at the border, and Israel say, no, you don't come back. You stay out. Even though uh, they weren't, they were fleeing being blown up and being killed and so on. They, they never left voluntarily because they felt like it, uh, because it's gone holiday. Now, there's propaganda by Zionists, of course, they'll argue um, that, oh, they heard a radio broadcast by some Arab governments that told them uh, leave uh, during the uh, the Arab-Israeli war, away from the call it, uh, the first war of independence, as Zionists might call it, uh, leave and we'll defeat the Zionists, then you can come back. That's mythical. There's no evidence for that at all whatsoever. What you, and we'll discuss that in the next part, but what you actually see is a preponderance of the opposite. These Arab states telling the Palestinians, stop, don't leave. You're emptying out the place. Like we need to maintain, you know, towns and villages that are, you know, that, uh, that are there, you know, because um, you're, you're, you're being ethnically cleansed. Uh, we need to maintain presence there. Don't just leave. You know, They try to stop them, even threatening them. Uh, at times, like, you know, like, don't leave, you know, like, you're not going to, uh, we'll treat you harshly if you come here because you shouldn't desert your land. You shouldn't run away. Um, that's easy to say when you're not, in your, in your, it's not your family being threatened by mortars and um, uh, terror gangs of Erdogan and others, but uh, the actually Arab states made in multiple publications which are on, on record to say, don't leave, um, mm. stay in Palestine, fight. But when they 
obviously had to leave and they try to come back. This is when Palestine, oh, this is when Israel stops them. And then many are quite angry and upset that their lands have been taken away from them. They can't go back to their towns and villages and they begin um, launching an insurgency against Israel proper. Many people, of them are resentful at what uh, happened to them and the denial of return. And the right of return is a very big key issue uh, between Palestinians and um, uh, and Zionists today, uh, which which we'll discuss in the next session. Okay, so it's important also to note uh, what was happening in the Muslim world at the same time, mostly Arab countries. So while you you had uh, Zionism and the stated goal of Zionists to take over Palestine, but it's the uh, it belongs to them. It is their land for a Jewish state. And at the same time, uh, you had reports of massacres and killings of Palestinians occurring. Uh, in the Arab world, there was pre-existing uh, Jewish populations uh, there, uh, the pre-existing the state of Israel, and they've been living with Muslims there for centuries and Christians as well. Mm. And now, unfortunately, there was some backlash to Zionism. One of the problems with uh, Zionism uh, was that it declared itself to be, in a sense, or the Israeli state, uh, declared itself to be the representative of uh, the, the, the Jewish people. And that it was acting uh, following the, the national or the global national will of the Jewish people, even though it doesn't have the authority to, to declare that and Jews disagree with it, even disagree with its own with its existence. But it was making that those declarations Unfortunately, uh, many people from the Arab countries nearby were believing this and they were seeing that uh, the Israeli state was massacring Palestinians <clears throat> and they unfortunately uh, started to connect or believe that the, the, the Jews that lived alongside them for, for centuries was somehow uh, uh, connected to or had a sympathy with Israel despite the massacres that it's committing, even though in, in many, many cases, this was, wasn't this was not the case. But in addition to this, was the Israeli state's call, uh, and certainly the call of many Zionists abroad throughout the world, and also in the Muslim world, to invite Jews to emigrate. It needed manpower. It needed yeah. population. Uh, even prior to 1948, there was uh, Ben Gurion uh, initiated the One Million Plan, uh, where they were going to prepare the Israeli state to absorb one million people over a short amount of time. Uh, this was, in essence, uh, a preparation for mass migration. Perhaps they believed it would come from Europe. But uh, when you had various complications, uh, certainly many Jews that were leaving Europe, uh, many went to America when they were permitted to do, to do so. Uh, they weren't going to Palestine. In fact, throughout all this period of migration, people were coming into Palestine from Europe after World War II and then using it as a spring a jumping off point to go to America. Right. Uh, today, the second largest population of Jews in the world is in America, uh, only has one million less than Israel does. So America was a competing place for Jews to go to with its promise mm -hmm. of freedom and equality and what have you. Uh, it also goes its public image anyway. So what you had is there was both a simultaneous encouragement by Zionists to, to Jews around the world to emigrate to Israel because it needs a population and it was uh, meant to be the Holy Land and it was a, the promised 
promised land. But at the same time, there was unfortunately some antipathy generated by uh, what people were seeing uh, in Palestine, what was happening to the Palestinians, this antipathy generated amongst um, Arabs. Now, one particular uh, Israeli historian, uh, Avi Shalayim, uh, Professor Avi Shalayim, uh, he's an Iraqi Jew by by this ancestry, and he reported, uh, he wrote a book, very interesting, a recent book about the, his family's experiences and so on, uh, but he posits something a little extra into the mix that uh, uh, Mossad, which was the secret service of um, mm-hmm. the Israeli state, um, was involved and to some extent encouraging um, Jews to leave the Muslim world when they noticed in many parts of the Muslim world that Jews were totally happy and fine where they were living, that they would encourage a false um, uh, animus against Jews by uh, detonating sometimes bombs in Jewish areas or near Jewish areas uh, by encouraging animus against Jews in an area to get those Jews to be motivated to leave and go to Israel because they needed the manpower. Now, that's what Abba Shalayim contends. Uh, I would advise everyone to just look at his work and see what you think about it uh, for yourself, whether that there is some merit in this. He he goes through some historical records. Uh, As we will see, uh, Israel is not a stranger to using subterfuge as well as liaisons um, in with with uh, back channel liaisons with other governments, um, as well as even using bombing campaigns in other countries, um, which have been admitted to, and it's not no one contends uh, to achieve certain policy objectives. So we'll, which we can we can look into, but we have to be honest. We have to be uh, open about this. There was mass migration of Jews from many Muslim countries that had been these Jews were living for centuries, for one thousand three hundred years, if not longer in these various uh, countries, and there was a, a beginning of an exodus. Maybe there was the promise of better uh, life because of the wealth that was coming into Israel. Um, maybe it was due to the zeal of Zionism, the zeal of the promised land as a, as a narrative. There was competing uh, and different motivations. Regardless of what was happening, I want to state that there was never a policy by Arab governments to evict uh, Jews out of their country. There was never a sustained or mass uh, policy. In fact, quite the opposite. Many of these governments, when they start to notice there was immigration leaving, um, immigration of Jews leaving their country to go to Israel, they actually tried to stop it, try to prevent um, the the immigration, try to keep them in, in the country, and not by either saying to them, if you leave, you lose your citizenship and not with us. Uh, there was different policies by different countries and so on and so forth, um, which, which vary. But uh, this was the case. It was never a, a a dedicated expulsion by the government, by its armed forces of Jews from Muslim lands or Arab countries. Modern-day Zionists will depict this emigration as a ethnic cleansing. Will even say this is genocide. This is an ethnic cleansing. You know, what about this? In, in a kind of a to use a two quid argument, uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Two-quid, as you know, is the Latin means, and you as well. Um, but uh, the, the Arab governments never mortared or, or bombed or, or shot uh, you know, Jews in the Muslim world to, to get them to evacuate their towns and villages and, and what have you. It's, this is obviously not comparable to what the Haganah and then Israeli Defense Forces did uh, in uh, Palestine to the Palestinians. Um, 
uh, one point uh, I mentioned here, just an example. And again, I want to stress this is all this is just scratching the surface. There's mm. a lot of material here. Uh, but uh, Mossad actually is documented. This is, again, not, not really disputed uh, with the Moroccan government actually to help Moroccan Jews leave. Um, at, at one point. So initially the Moroccan government wanted to keep Jews in, in Morocco, uh, but then um, uh, Mossad, by some various inducements, uh, worked with the Moroccan government uh, to encourage the Moroccan government to let Jews come to Israel and then facilitated uh, Jewish immigration uh, to Israel. So Israel wanted the Jews to come. They wanted them to leave the Arab world. They were inviting them to, they were begging them to uh, come. We need your manpower. We need you to come and uh, bulk up our population. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. So now let's fast forward uh, a bit to, from uh, 1949 to 1956. Uh, the Suez War. Uh, uh, long story short, uh, the Egyptians wanted to nationalise uh, the Suez Canal Company, and Britain, uh, having its own colonial stake in the place, uh, as well as France, uh, worked with Israel to prevent that nationalization of the Suez Canal and uh, basically uh, they agreed a plan to take over the Sinai by both with British, French and Israeli forces. Of course Israel is right next door so they initiated the invasion into Sinai. This was the, the next war after the so-called War of Independence and it was completely initiated on the uh, say Israeli side. It wasn't the fighting a defensive war against Arabs, repeated assaults many Zionists will use a narrative of Israel was attacked so many times. It was attacked again, 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 and with all these multiple wars and we, we won. No, this was a war initiated by Israel along with Britain and France. Um, due to pressure from America, who didn't want Britain and France uh, kind of taking over the, the squares, uh, they managed to pressure everyone to go back. And so England and France had to reluctantly concede the squares and Israel went back to uh, the borders recognized by the United Nations. Uh, and uh, that was the end of that, but it's an example of uh, Israeli aggression. Um, origins of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, we see in 1964, uh, the development of, you might call a, a, an organized platform for Palestine advocacy. Uh, it was, partly a political party, but also partly an insurgency and... But, but it wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't actually an Islamic, a Muslim organisation. Hamas obviously is, explicitly, by definition, and of course it's that. But the PLO wasn't, was it? I think there were Christians who were involved at the highest levels. Yes, it was avowedly a secular and Arab nationalist organisation. So it didn't um, countenance religion so much, uh, more than just a... Uh, cultural feature of the Palestinians. One particular cultural feature, but not the only one. Uh, but yes, it was a completely secular party and it uh, began a formalized, you could say, armed struggle against the Israeli state, um, raids and attacks and uh, hijacking of planes and things like this. This was a time when planes were being hijacked all over the place, but they weren't being flown into buildings. They were being <laughs> as to take hostages and ransom, to ransom prisoners um, that were taken by Israel uh, of, 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 of Palestinian fighters. So this was um, the, the kind of work of the PLO. At the same time, it was trying to get recognition from the United Nations of the legitimacy of a, of a Palestinian state 
and the they were fighting for what is known in international law as the right to self-determination, which was their main uh, their their main points um, of, of their of their arguments of their campaigns was they believed the Palestinians would deny their right of self-determination, which according to international law, in essence, was what was happening. Uh, now, for their, their efforts, uh, they were kind of granted observer status in uh, 1974, and they were led by Yasser Arafat until his death in 2004. Um, now, uh, Fatah, which you might have heard as well, is a kind of a component of the PLO, uh, its majority faction, uh, not the only one. There was a few Marxists here and there, a few others, but it was the majority uh, faction. And sometimes it's viewed as a synonymous with the, the PLO, but it is not the same thing as uh, the PLO, just for those who, who know. It's an acronym, of course, it means Palestine, Palestinian Na uh, National Liberation Movement, but also Fatah sounds similar to the Arabic word, you know, um, uh, to to open, you know, to, uh, well, right. something's closed to, to open it. So, like, like in Surah Fatiha, the opening um, yeah. chapter of the Quran. Yeah. Now, it, during this time, there wasn't was, there wasn't uh, uh, kind of a complete peace between um, Israel and its neighbours. Uh, Israel engaged in what it considered to be retaliatory raids. So, whenever a PLO would infiltrate its borders, they might shoot an Israeli soldier. Um, or, or leave a man landmine on an area where it will be patrolled by a military vehicle. Uh, so Israel's response has always been, uh, it has actually been quite consistent, which is uh, to be disproportionate and uh, commit war crimes. And this was illustrated by, this was, wasn't the only instance, but this was a, a famous instance, which was the attack on the Jordanian village of Samul. So uh, Jordan... Uh, had at its borders, so it controlled the West Bank, and at its borders with Israel, it didn't want to antagonize Israel at all whatsoever. It had UN observers um, on its borders, so around the West Bank, which Jordan controlled, Jordan had a UN observers. It had its own police patrolling regularly and would um, arrest and sometimes even kill many uh, Fedayeen and PLO uh, fighters uh, trying to sneak over the border, or sometimes just bandits as well. It was doing, it was notable for doing a, a very strong and stern police job on its end because it didn't want to antagonize the Israelis. Mm. Even though the PLO actually, its base at the time of this was in Syria, um, there was a landmine that was uh, deployed in, uh, in Israel, uh, or within the Green Line, as they say, and uh, it killed a few soldiers and Israel decided to respond. Now, there was no evidence that the actual attack actually came from Jordan. Even UN observers remarked at the time that monitoring the borders, they didn't see any breaches of it and that they committed Jordan. But that did uh, it, Jordan killed more uh, Palestinian resistance fighters going into Israel or trying to go into Israel than the Israelis did. <laughs> that was what Jordan was doing. It, it tried its best. But... Israel is always want, unfortunately, if you look at the historical record, to uh, to revenge and to disproportionate attacks. And on the 13th of November 1966, it destroyed a Jordanian village in retaliation for these attacks. It came in, uh, blew, uh, didn't kill that many civilians this time, but it blew up buildings, um, damaged a mosque, destroyed uh, and, and set fire and so on uh, as a as a retaliation. 
the village, I mean, what's the village got to do with the PLO or even the Fedayeen? Uh, nothing. It reminds me a lot of, dare I say, you know, the French resistance fighters in World War II, if there was an, a resistance attack, uh, the oh, yeah. occupying, occupying forces, which go unnamed, uh, they <laughs> would f find the, the nearest French village and just destroy it and massacre the people there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. In, in, in where I live in France, there's a little village just in the next village along. It's in southwest France. Um, it, it, there is a memorial there because um, some some of the occupying force, who shall be nameless, as you put it, uh, killed uh, were killed by the resistance. And what the Germans did, they went to this village near where I live and they rounded up uh, randomly, I mean, round up uh, randomly a uh, hundred uh, villagers and lined them up and shot them. Um, these are men and women, ordinary farmers in retaliation. Uh, so that this this is, uh, you're right, this is a tactic that the uh, the unnamed occupiers in, in France used in the Second World War. And it's been used by um, this other group that you're talking about now. Yeah, I mean, in this particular case, that didn't happen. They didn't line up the villages and shot them. Uh, only four uh, civilians, as I said, were, were, were killed. Uh, however, there were other villages where they where it, it kind of looked like it sunk along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, now, even the United States of America condemned the attack by the Israelis, and the United Nations issued a resolution condemning the attack um, against Jordan. Now, what uh, what would be noted by I think anyone who looks at the history of this is that Jordan, I mean, the tax, if the tax did happen across Jordan border, it was against Jordan's wishes, despite its best efforts, and it was never state sanctioned. Whenever there was a cross border attack from the Israel side, it was state sanctioned by their military and it created a, a, a well, it's targeting civilian um, infrastructure at the very least, if not civilians themselves. I think people should see the uh, asymmetry of the, the two protagonists as an example of Israel's policy generally. Now, um, this is uh, this is a bit, uh, there's actually a, a big quote here, and I only leave it for anyone, you want to pause the video, go look it for yourself. But uh, the, United Nations, the United States was worried about that Israel was undermining its client regime. And I say that very a client regime in Jordan. Jordan was playing ball. Jordan was being paid by United States of America $500 million to, as, to act as a stabilizing factor on Israel's longest border. So they were paid to basically, uh, it, it, you know, well, of course they uh, wouldn't do anything anyway, but they were, uh, they were paid to be a stabilizing factor to stabilize Israel's borders. And you get this here from this memorandum uh, that was given to President Johnson, uh, uh, the American presently of America at the time in 1966. Uh, it's, there's a lot of interesting facts here uh, that yeah. come up, most people don't seem to realize. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, even noting with concern, it says that it makes, uh, that Israel's actions makes even moderate Arabs feel fatalistically that there is mm -hmm. nothing they can do to get along with the Israelis, no matter how hard they try. Mm -hmm. So no matter what they do, with the Israelis, Israelis are going to act in very unjust manners towards their neighbors. Uh, but also, the, the key point is uh, the, the amount of money that the United States of America are pumping into the regional governments to keep them nice and friendly and actually complicit and 
coordinating with Israel is a, a point. Because I mentioned that those claims, and I sometimes call them client regimes. So this is just one particular factoid where I give some evidence for. There's a lot of things I've said here which I haven't been able to give evidence for because of for, for sake of time. Uh, but inshallah, uh, not just in part two, but also in the course, we go through documents in detail. This is there's uh, hundreds. There's, there was quite literally hundreds of thousands of documents. Not, not that I that to read out there, but we go over some very interesting and, and ones that um, all show a consistent style, a consistent um, uh, history of the relations of the Arab regimes to Israel. <clears throat> Now, due to tensions with Israel, uh, Jordan accused Egypt of basically just doing nothing uh, to uh, help uh, Jordan defend, and uh, to defend Jordan and so on and so forth. And Egypt was promoting itself as the champion of the Arabic world, that it was the defender of the Arabic world and the, the lead nation. Um, so this plus the, the pressure from the populations, it caused Nasser to make some symbolic uh, gestures of uh, support. Uh, there's also a curious tale that the Soviet Union um, apparently told Nasser, for some reasons which are completely unknown to historians, we don't know why, um, that Israel was amassing an army along uh, the, the border of Syria, uh, as well as uh, potentially with Egypt. Uh, so what Gamal Abdel Nasser, who's the president of the very charismatic Egyptian president at the time, he begins massing troops on the, uh, the border with Israel. Now... The troops are nowhere near an invasion force. Uh, intelligence reports at the time, even the Mossad um, reports and others, all acknowledge the same thing, which is that this is a show of strength. It's just to rattle sabers. There isn't. It's not an invasion force at all whatsoever. Uh, the Israelis were unconcerned by um, that. But also, he closed the Straits of Tehran, which is where. Uh, uh, shipping comes from to, to South uh, Israel by its uh, the, the port city of Bilat. Um, now that was you know Egypt was in a, in a situation where it had to at least show some indignation and rattle sabers to say that we are doing something. Look, we're making these gestures to you know uh, to tell Israel that you know don't do it again. <laughs> um, but Israel used this as an as a opportunity uh, to. Uh, in essence, strike first against, well, they strike first, two, they call it striking first, but there was never, striking first implies that the other side were actually ever going to strike, uh, but rather to just strike against uh, Egypt, against Syria, and so on. And it began uh, a bombing campaign which uh, caught the Egyptian Air Force unaware on the ground, destroyed them. It caught the Egyptian army by surprise because they weren't expecting any fighting because they weren't going to do any fighting. And this led to uh, a rapid ground advance by the Israeli army, uh, which led to them controlling and taking over all of the Sinai in six days. So, and it's not the first time they took it back. That's where they took it. They took it in 1956. But this is them taking it again, and we have to wait for Egypt to take it back in the subsequent war. This is the infamous Six Days Wars, because they also took uh, the Golan Heights. Now, as with Jordan, um, Jordan had placed their army under the control of an, of an Egyptian general under a United um, Arab Defense Pact. Uh, there's a long story which I won't go get into, but the uh, the King Abdullah was reticent to to uh, join in the fighting or what have you. Uh, I think he just tokenly sh fired some artillery shots into Israel, um, seeing that Israel is fighting Egypt and Syria, and he, uh, Israel uses the pretext to invade 
the West Bank. This is where the West Bank gets invaded. Mm. Uh, the Israelis. Um, <clears throat> again, this is um, this map shows you the conquest of the Golden Heights by the um, uh, Israeli forces in the north against Syria. Again, Israel, uh, Syria was not launching any invasion army. Jordan wasn't launching any invasion army, and the Egyptians were not in launching any invasion army. This is, this is a war initiated by Israel, and even admitted by such that it was initiated. It was uh, it wasn't a war of defence uh, by subsequent um, Israeli presence, which we can get into in the next session. Okay, uh, so Israel took over these conquests in, in the bright green here. Uh, it signalled that it might. Uh, return these lands in return for peace. So it might return Golan Heights back to Syria in return for peace. It might return uh, Sinai back to Egypt in return for peace. Uh, but as some of the years went by, uh, a few years, just a few, just a few years went by, um, and when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser signaled the possibility of you know, uh, you know of, of actually taking up on that offer, uh, the Israeli military and, and now under Golda Meir, who is now the Prime Minister. Uh, was actually quite overconfident, thinking, well, you know what, our military is actually pretty unbeaten, we'll just keep it. They mm -hmm. actually didn't want to talk about it, actually. No, no, you know what, we, we, won't, we won't come to that at the moment. We, we're, kind of, we're kind of happy with, our, with our, what we've taken, because they've, uh, they've increased Israel's size multiple fold now. I mean, Sinai is mostly wasteland, but it can always be developed. Um, at this time, Israel then took uh, the, so the, the municipality of East Jerusalem, so, uh, in the previous war, in 1948, uh, the Zionists took over West Jerusalem and they, they held on to that. Uh, but East Jerusalem was taken by the Jordanians as part of the West Bank. And here, they incorporate it into the municipality of Jerusalem in total as a, as a united Jerusalem municipality. Now, the West Bank was never offered to Jordan back, saying, we'll give it back to you in return for peace. That was never offered to Jordan. So, clearly, they treat the West Bank rather differently then they treated the other territories. Uh, now, the 1967 aftermath, uh, it led to uh, the three no's, the infamous three no's, uh, by the Khartoum, Khartoum Resolution, where the Arab League didn't want to actually uh, give Israel uh, formal uh, recognition or peace um, and were very uh, outraged at. So after the war, the Arab states were indignant at having their land uh, conquered and taken over by Israeli state, and they weren't in the mood to negotiate. And they came up at the, at the Khartoum conference with the Khartoum resolution, the three uh, no's, no peace to Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations uh, with Israel. Now, at this time, there was uh, only some good news for some Palestinians, um, which was the Palestinians in what is within the Green Line, armistice lines, uh, or Israel proper, quote-unquote, according to the UN, uh, they had actually been living under military rule for almost 20 years, since 1948. So that 20% uh, minority of, of Palestinians which hadn't been expelled or killed or massacred were actually living under a different set of laws and rules than the other citizens of that state. So I know many many Zionists like to say that they treat the uh, they, they're called the Israeli Arabs. They treat the Israeli Arabs as equal citizens, but for the first twenty years of their of their existence within the Israeli state, they were under military 
uh, law and martial law. Uh, only after the Six-Day War uh, were they actually given, uh, I suppose, full civil rights, um, which was different to what they'd been living under for 20 years. So after they'd been chewed up by the by 20 years of martial uh, law and rule, they were allowed to be um, equal citizens in uh, a, a civil sense. So their, their life improved a bit because they were allowed uh, to uh, be uh, given uh, full rights. So Israel, buoyed by its success and feeling itself invincible, probably felt like it could give them rights now. Uh, it felt like, okay, they're not for anymore. Um, there was also another major turning point in this point, in this war, which was that prior to this, uh, the, ma the majority of religious Jews around the world arguably uh, didn't have expressed much support or enthusiasm for Israel. Many of them still disagreed with uh, the notion uh, of uh, an Israeli nation state uh, when it was believed by them that they must wait for the Messiah to come and establish yeah. um, the state for, for Jews, uh, a state based on Mosaic law, a kingdom of God, not a nation state based with secular laws and, and liberal uh, or socialist um, political policies. Uh, but this changed. It was viewed that Israel had divine favor by winning in six days, beating all the local uh, regimes around it. And so this saw a sea change in support from many religious Jews around the world. And this uh, began to then affect the, uh, the demographics of support amongst Jews uh, for Israel, even within Israel. Uh, and we saw that in the West Bank, which was newly conquered, the beginning of um, religious Jews uh, venturing out and establishing settlements in the West Bank, which we now know today as obviously breaking international law. Um, a small point, uh, which was there was a, a, a mini war, you could say, just the uh, duration of one battle called the Battle of Karana, where, where in order to destroy in PLO uh, camp, so Jordan obviously uh, began to uh, host the uh, the PLO and um, on, on its side, uh, it faced an invasion by Israel. So it's not really widely reported. It was a, a limited incursion, I suppose, and the Jordanian army uh, fought them off. Uh, again, the UN Security Council Resolution 248 condemns Israel for breaking the ceasefire yet again. Another aggressive policy by the Israeli state. Um, the Jordanian army seems to have fought them off and they went back into uh, Israel, though uh, arguably the Karama camp of the uh, the PLO, uh, they argue, is destroyed in the process. They will say, Israelis will say they achieved the objectives and, and that was it. But just a small point anyway, um, to see there's a, a constant breaching of the borders by the Israeli state with its military into the, its neighboring um, states. Uh, Black September, the, the Jordanian civil war. Um, so I won't, I won't go this in, in, in detail. You can pause it and read it for yourself. But basically, uh, most most people don't realize is that uh, Jordan, after taking in so many Palestinian refugees, um, is some people say almost fifty percent of Jordanians are Palestinian, basically. And there was tensions and that uh, between the, the PLO and others uh, with the Jordanian government, and the Jordanian government is not doing enough is even taking seriously uh, the, the fight against Israel and to seek self-determination for the Palestinians. They've just seemed to have given up on the West Bank and, and uh, not done anything else. Uh, so the West Bank loss by uh, the Palestinians is a, is a further 
uh, exacerbating factor, further Nakba, you could say, because um, now they've lost more land, uh, and now they don't control any land in the former mandate of Palestine. And so there was a lot of eagerness uh, to do more to get back that land, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the Jordanians were very reticent to do anything beyond just make uh, uh, public verbal platitudes. Um, now, 1973, we call it the Yom Kippur War, or let's call it the Ramadan War, um, uh, but Egypt with Syria and its Arab allies decides to launch a war to get back the lost territories, not uh, the, Palest the Palestine or, or, or the West Bank, because Jordan's not participating, um, to conquer the West Bank, but just to get back the Golan Heights and the Sinai. So this was a war that the Arab countries nearby did initiate. This wasn't a war that Israel initiated. This is one of the, the rare cases where the neighboring states actually initiated the war themselves, and it wasn't a war to destroy Israel. Everyone agrees, any historian worth their salt would say this was never a war uh, against Israel itself. It was always a limited objective, which is they wanted, uh, Egypt and Syria wanted to get back the lands they lost. Um, Syria uh, kind of gets defeated, uh, is unable to, to take back the Golan Heights. Egypt manages to get its army over the Suez Canal, takes over uh, the east bank of the Suez Canal, and Israel can't dislodge them. They then later on use that as a negotiating um, position to kind of give um, in return for giving Israel peace and normalization, Israel will uh, give back the Sinai. So this is just, again, the opening moves by the Egyptian army on the left, and um, Israel was never able to dislodge them uh, back into Egypt from Sinai, although Sinai is part of Egypt, but uh, Sinai was uh, kind of, the Egyptian army maintained its, its hold on, on, on the Sinai and Israel was kind of forced to come to terms, whereas previously they hadn't cared to to uh, consider actually giving back Sinai, feeling that their army was invincible, but they actually were, they faced some serious tactical defeats. Um, so this was obviously uh, before the war began. Uh, sorry, this is, uh, sorry, this is the finishing positions after the war. So before the war began, Egypt uh, had lost Sinai to Israel. And after the war had finished, this was the positions where the Egyptian army had was able to control this kind of golden sliver uh, on the East Bank. Now, uh, the Israelis managed to do a very uh, a limited breakthrough past the Suez Canal into Egypt as a means to um, improve their bargaining position, um, but uh, they they couldn't hold that forever, and they had to ret return back anyway into into the Sinai because they were because they were extended into the other side of Egypt, and Egypt could just. Um, uh, uh, could uh, deal with them at their leisure. So this was just a, a ploy uh, to kind of improve their bargaining position. That oh, we control some of Egypt, you control some of Sinai, but oh, strategically Israel knew they had to give up the Sinai because Egypt was not going to let go once it had its teeth back into its former uh, territories. Um, anyway, um, the first Camp David Accords, the first Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty, uh, the peace agreement signed in September 1978 um, for a of Israel from Egypt uh, in return for a, uh, a peace treaty and some kind of normalization. So it's typically called as a cold peace because um, Egypt has peace, but they don't do anything else beyond just, you know, no fighting, I suppose, um, at least officially anyway. 
Um, okay, uh, so we're, we're going to increase pace because there's there's again a lot here to discuss. And we we've um, I'm conscious of the time, so you can read it and you can research it uh, a bit more if you'd like. But uh, this is now the first incursion into Lebanon. So Lebanon had avoided uh, incursions into its territory since the 1948 war to 1949, uh, but now Israel. Uh, seeking to root out um, the PLO, which has a stronghold in South Lebanon due to all the Palestinian refugees that are in South Lebanon that have mm. fled since the 1948-1949 war. Uh, so they they uh, invade, they uh, ally with some nationalist uh, Christian Lebanese forces who view, view the Palestinians, um, who are mostly Muslim, um, as being invaders, non, these non-Lebanese people coming here and they're just, you know, they're coming into our country, taking our jobs and uh, marrying our women, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so they, it, was, it was a strange or curious phenomenon of Lebanese Christian nationalism. Um, so uh, Israel basically uh, attempts to uh, remove the PLO presence from uh, South Lebanon. And this was one of the many of many operations they, uh, they were going to initiate. In. So this is one already, sorry, five years after their, their previous war. They, didn't, they don't like to um, uh, waste time they, before their next war. Uh, again, a second war, a second war into uh, South Lebanon, or technically it's a third because they attacked in, in 1948 War too. but um, the, the second war in Lebanon, uh, again, um, targeting PLO, but in this case, uh, they came, the PLO had to come to terms and leave uh, Lebanon uh, due to uh, Israeli pressure as well as inciting um, Christian militia. Now, it was this these repeated invasions of Lebanon, it was in this particular war that would see the creation of the organization we know today as Hezbollah. Wow. So some, uh, some of the people in Lebanon, some Lebanese who weren't Christian were not very happy about Israel constantly invading and bombarding Beirut. Uh, so they seemed to react. And of course, Supported by Syria and then later on Iran, uh, the organization of, of Hezbollah would uh, rise in Lebanon. Um, it was during this time we see the infamous Sabra and Shatila massacre. Uh, go and read it for yourself, um, where Israel cahoots with Lebanese uh, national, Christian nationalist group called the Falange, which is um, the, the word for fa uh, phalanx. phalanx. Um, they massacred a, uh, a Palestinian refugee camp, uh, Sabra and Shatila refugee camp, uh, in the neighborhoods of Beirut. Um, now, you might have heard of this organization, um, Origins of Hamas. Uh, around this time, uh, so a couple of years around this time, uh, we see Hamas is formed in Gaza, an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. It was previously uh, an organization that uh, was, in essence, uh, dealing with uh, community projects and from, from the mosques there. It wasn't a, a, a formal political party um, that it would become later, at, at, nor with its militant wing, the Izzedine al-Qassam Brigade. Um, but it, it gets formed in Gaza. Initially, uh, Israel doesn't do anything to, um, to Hamas and even views it as a potentially useful rival to its main enemy, Fatah. Uh, divide, divide and conquer, I suppose. Oh, uh, indeed. Yeah, indeed. 
do, do we know what Hamas stands for? Obviously, is it an acronym? Is it in Arabic? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's basically uh, the uh, for, for the, the harakat for uh, sorry the uh, uh, the the front of or kind of uh, method uh, for for fighting um, and resistance. Basically, if you were to right. give a translation, a rough translation, okay. uh, but it's an acronym basically. So it's a resistance. It's a resistance organization. A resistance against occupation. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's what it is basically um, arguing. It, it is doing. Um, like the PLO, they are both arguing that they are resistance organizations, right? But it views itself as um, uh, the the you know the movement for uh, Islamic resistance. I suppose what the translation of um, it, it stands for, and it's kind of. Um, at first, it doesn't have a military force. Um, it's just a Islamically based. So it's trying to uh, right. use Islam, not because PLO is yeah, okay, yeah. So this is part, yeah. it's a part of the global resurgence of Islam, isn't it? In a way, moving away from Arab nationalism, secularism to a more Islamic-based conception of civil society, and yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's more Islamic based, but basically, yeah, it's it's an acronym. Um, the the, mm. the vowels aren't in the in the Arabic. Um, this is right. um, HMS, so Harakat al Makawima Islamiyah. So uh, a movement for an Islamic resistance or insurgency uh, or what have you. So it's one of the first, you could say, uh, major players that arises amongst the Palestinians, um, which is not based on uh, secular nationalism. Uh, it's based on, uh, ostensibly, it, it claims it based on this on on, on an Islamic premise uh, for the liberation of Palestine to create an Islamic state, not to create a secular uh, re republic or what have you. Uh, so that all makes it different, and Israel views it as an interesting counterpoint to um, Fatah, uh, the use of religion against Fatah and the PLO to undermine the, its main rival at that point in time. Um, it then later on formed, has, formed a military wing called the Izzadina al-Qasim Brigade, which uh, remains its military wing today. So any military operations done um, by Hamas is done by uh, that wing. Uh, Hamas is meant to be a political uh, party, at least it will declare itself to be a political party, and its militant operations are done by this separate wing. That's in essence why you might have heard that uh, mentioned uh, is a Dinal Qasam Brigade, if you've ever heard that mentioned alongside it. Um, a, a point to mention about its charter, 1988 charter, we will discuss this in, in the next part, uh, yeah. but it's claimed that its charter is advocating for the genocide of, of Jews and massacre of Jews and so on and so forth um, as its aim, uh, which it well, we'll discuss in the next part, whether that's, that's true or not. Um, but I must point out that, as I said, we whenever we investigate anything, uh, we have to be absolutely factual about it, whether it's for or against any position that we hold. Um, and of course, uh, its state objective in its charter is to create a, an Islamic state in Palestine uh, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims can all coexist peacefully under Islamic law. This is what it says in one of its articles. So it's, a, it's approaching uh, not from a secular basis, but it doesn't mean that even if it's from a, from a secular basis, uh, that it uh, it must, if therefore, be one of or a genocidal, uh, mass murdering, um, uh, political objective where it would kill all Jews in the whole world, which is what some Zionists say. Uh, so we, uh, we, whether we disagree with Hamas or not, 
we have to be careful never to misrepresent anyone. At the same time, not misrepresent Zionists as either as well in what they say or what their their arguments or their political parties believe in. Um, in 1988, uh, now in this year, a lot of things are happening. The Arab League um, gives officially um, financial control uh, of the uh, they give financial control of the funds which it gives to the PLO. Um, uh, it, it gives them some authority. Um, it then creates a Palestine uh, kind of it recognizes PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinians, uh, and kind of in a sense, King Hussein just kind of flings on the West Bank onto the PLO's um, shoulders, saying, you know what, we renounce all claims to the West Bank. Now it's the PLO's concern now. You deal with Israel, uh, you negotiate with them, or you um, handle them. Uh, we're done with, <laughs> with West Bank. So this is where um, the PLO both gave get more formal recognition from um, the Arab League in having some kind of finances, um, in having some kind of... Um, legal authority or representation um, behind all um, all Palestinians. Uh, and this is also where you might see that Israel kind of sees the use, utility of Hamas, because Hamas thinks that the PLO basically um, uh, on, on don't represent all Palestinians and don't represent them because they're coming from a, a non-secular basis. Uh, so it's just an interesting point. This is where uh, Jordan uh, basically uh, kind of the, the doesn't care about West Bank anymore and says, you know, uh, we give it over to the PLO as their, their concern. Syria hasn't given up on, on the Golan Heights, um, although Egypt did give up on get on Gaza as well. That's also important. I, I, I forgot to mention that. They did give up on Gaza. They, didn't, uh, they formally recognized in the peace treaty in the Camp David Accord uh, that Gaza will be now the concern of the Palestinian, whatever Palestinian authority is there. So they both give up on those territories. Um, okay, 1988 to 1993. Um, we see the rise of the first Intifada. Uh, we're getting to now almost modern times, or recent times, sorry, sorry say rather. Uh, Intifada means in Arabic to shake off. They were going to do mass demonstrations, protests, civil disobedience, and a, a bunch of other things. Unfortunately, of course, there, there's, there was violence involved. Um, and this uh, leads to uh, almost 2,000 Palestinians dead um, over five years and uh, 270 Israelis uh, dead. Uh, this is, was due, of course, to the dissatisfaction at the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. The, the military regime that the Palestinians were ruled under um, and the, the, the same similar things that were happening now, maybe not as bad, um, but still they were denied self-determination, they were denied sovereignty um, in their own land and therefore uh, this was uh, the reaction. Um, 1994, you see the a formal peace treaty between Jordan and Israel, uh, normalization, recognition, uh, uh, recognition and agreement of the borders that you have today, minus the West Bank. Uh, the infamous Oslo Accords. Um, so mm -hmm. nine, now this is this is a, a turning point for the PLO. Uh, the PLO had been using violent resistance as one of its many means, as well as political campaigning. Um, it made an agreement uh, with uh, Israel. Some would say to the detriment of the Palestinians in the West Bank because of what was agreed, which we'll get to in a sec. Uh, but the Palestinians, um, in return for some, uh, for an offer of some withdrawal 
of the Israeli armies from areas in the West Bank. Uh, the PLO must recognize the right of the state of Israel to exist, and um, and basically, yeah, which they never did before, and renounce the use of violent resistance. So in return for that, uh, Israel would, would withdraw from the areas which, we, which will later be called Area A. Um, this, uh, let's just get, let me just try to get a map. Okay, so this is um, so the, uh, the divisions of the West Bank. There's Area A, B, and C, if you look on the the legend on the bottom there well anything that's not covered in is area c so the kind of uh, orangey areas are area a uh, that's where the palestinian authority which would be uh, which would be the you could say uh, some quasi government uh, that the plo will uh, form part of um, will have full control orangey areas you see there um, area a area b they will have administrative control uh, of those areas, so they will set the rules and laws, but Israel will control the, the security and the policing of those areas. Um, the, the largest area, which forms 60% of the West Bank, is Area C. It's the area which is in white. And Israel will have full control, both uh, in uh, making laws and rules, as well as the security of Area C. That's where you see the Israeli settlements, and which are in uh, kind of a, a purplish color. This is quite important, and this is what, where you see that final image on, uh, uh, that we saw at the beginning of this presentation on the right-hand side. Um, now, maybe the Palestinians were very desperate to control areas and have the uh, Israeli jackaboo off their necks and have some respite in some areas. But this was at the cost of underwriting and signing the authority of Israel to control um, Area C, as well as to police Area B. And of course, anyone who's seen the recent, um, well, it's not, it's not only recent, but uh, the recent um, uh, invasions of Israel into Jenin, uh, Janine is on, the, is on the north there, if you see at the top there, uh, Janine. Janine is still in Area A, but Israel, as it sees fit, can send its army into there whenever it wants and arrests people. Uh, it's almost like you imagine that they, maybe it's, it's, it's a comforting thought that you think they uh, wouldn't, uh, they would honor their agreement not to enter Area A, but they do when they, whenever they want to, and they, and they want to quite regularly. Um, so, in return for um, underwriting uh, the Israeli control of Area C, uh, Israeli control of Area C has allowed them to do whatever they want in those areas. And Benjamin Netanyahu was caught on a on a kind of a hidden recording, I think, um, talking about the uh, the genius of the plan, which is under the Oslo agreements, he can declare uh, anywhere in Area C to be a security zone for armies uh, for mm -hmm. soldiers. Or barracks, or whatever. A security. It needn't be a place that's that literally holds a military base. It can just be military land for security purposes, and it could be as large as he wants. You can declare that anywhere. So if that is in a place where there's a, a Palestinian village, that Palestinian village has to go because it's in a land declared to be um, under uh, by the military to be military zone. Of course, once they go. Uh, and some settlers come in and begin um, 
putting a stake in the ground and uh, and bringing their trailers and, and if, if enough number of them comes in uh well that's just how it is and they'll be allowed to do so uh, uh, because the israeli law the law of, of israel itself doesn't go into the west bank and this is a a key point the laws of the area c are done purely by military diktats so whatever the military says whatever the military wants including military tribunals so the military court the court cases occur purely in the israeli military courts uh, uh, now of course and here's the weird thing of course and this is a co quite convenient thing unless you're an israeli citizen uh, then as you're an israeli citizen you're still liable for what you do as an individual uh, because you're an Israeli citizen, uh, even if you're in a land that's that's in theory outside the jurisdiction of Israeli law, uh, what this conveniently creates is a two-law system, where a Palestinian is under the diktat of, of law that they don't control and they don't vote in Parliament for a legislature to enact or to determine. Uh, they they're told what the law is and they have to obey. And as some of these laws, we'll see the next part are insane. Uh, and very, uh, very stifling, to put it mildly. Whereas Israeli citizens in the West Bank are just under Israeli law, and they are entitled to you know, proper court cases, proper representation, and everything, which is which uh, you might not be getting the same degree in a military tribunal or court. Um, I won't go into too much into the persecution of the Palestinians because that's more for the second part. But uh, just so you understand what the Oslo Agreement. Um, entailed the Oslo Agreement um, and the Tabar Agreement, which is also nicknamed as Oslo II. Um, again, this, people sometimes put them into both into the same um, set of accords, the Oslo Accords. Uh, so both the Tabar Agreement and the what is called the Oslo Accords. So um, I hope that's anyway, that makes general sense in terms of um, the Oslo Accords. Uh, many Palestinians think it was a really bad idea. Um, now that they are facing it, because also, as you can see here, the Palestinian areas are disconnected from each other. Mm -hmm. This means that uh, Israel can, and it does, uh, put checkpoints everywhere between these uh, Bantu stars, to use a South African term, uh, mm -hmm. or, or you could say camps, if you'd like, um, of a concentrating nature, um, <laughs> Uh, or reservations, if you want to use the North American uh, terminology. Um, and uh, to get from one one of these areas to the other, uh, where a car, in a car journey, it might take you just, you know, uh, 10 minutes or five minutes, uh, can take four hours, as every time you go from one area to the next, you have to be checked um, thoroughly. Uh, at the soldier's convenience, by the way, so they can just uh, put their feet up and, watch YouTube while they're waiting in an ambulance seeking urgent medical attention to get to the hospital. Um, so uh, that is Oslo. And um, some people think that um, uh, Yasser Arafat uh, was, was conned and duped into um, signing, uh, in essence, the, a, a type of legitimacy for Israel's occupation. Now, the point of the Oslo Agreement was a big, a phased withdrawal that there would be within five years. Initially, the Israelis would begin to withdraw gradually from all from almost all the areas, subject to a final resolution or negotiation of the final um, uh, boundaries of, of the West Bank. But is, Israelis just kept saying, the Israeli government just kept saying, 
well, there's all these security concerns, and oh, there's you know uh, someone in one part of the West Bank um, dog bit some guys, uh, some Israeli soldiers shoe. Therefore, this the security situation is not it's not in, being managed properly. Therefore, we can't withdraw just yet. And they've used that to prolong withdrawal till today. They still haven't withdrawn, even though it was meant to be initially just five years uh, from 1993. Uh, that's the circumstance we have now. It's a perpetual uh, occupation um, of the West Bank uh, with increasing building of Israeli settlements. And there's, there's and as, as I said, there's much more besides this um, to tell you about the plight of the Palestinians in the West Bank, not just how they're treated, but also the kinds of policies they're under, um, the disproportionate um, distribution of water where settlements get access to 85% of the water of the West Bank, whereas the Palestinians of the West Bank, who are the vast majority of it, only get 15% of the available water. Um, but that's for a different, uh, different time. To discuss. Okay, <clears throat> the infamous Camp David summit in 2000. Uh, many Zionists will go straight to this and say this was where the Palestinians were offered peace and they rejected it. They rejected um, these these uh, peace proposals that Israel had proffered to them. Uh, this was mediated by Bill Clinton um, and it was with um, uh, meant to be a, a final resolution of a, a, a generous uh, peace deal offered to the Palestinians. <coughs> um, one of the issues is uh, that people like to quote, and we'll come to this in the second part, suppose, but they like to quote the uh, amounts. They say the Palestinians were so generously offered 95% of the West Bank and they said no. Yasser Arafat said no, he didn't accept this. I mean, now, to put it in perspective, both the West Bank and Gaza are only 22% of the mandate of Palestine. And all the Palestinians in the land of Palestine, in the whole mandate, plus the Israeli Arabs, if you add it all together, they are currently 51% of the population. So they should be happy with, okay, I know the Israeli Arabs won't have to, won't have to leave Israel proper, but um, they should be happy with 22%. Oh, no, no, less than 22%, 95%, 22%. How generous. Um, now, this is the Camp David uh, proposal. Uh, now, what you might observe in this, um, which is quite clear to all, is, um, yeah, Jerusalem doesn't seem to be part of this uh, Arab state uh, that they offer. Like, like, how do the uh, West Bank Palestinians access Jerusalem? It seems that the blue area is everything that Israel will annex. Right. Uh, you've got three discontinuous or four discontinuous blobs. So it's not a contiguous state uh, in the West Bank. And, and and access to Jerusalem, well, you think you can see it for yourself. See, people like to talk about percentages, but they don't, they never talk about, the Zionists like to do this, but they never show you the map. Here's the map. Would any mm -hmm. Palestinian or anyone accept that as their state? A state that's cut into four pieces with loads of settlements and barriers in between all these uh, these these areas, including no access to what's meant to be the capital for the Palestinians, east of Jerusalem. Where is the ease of access? Where is it? Where is it contiguously part of the state? It's not. And they even cut off from Jordan, uh, as you can see. 
um, there is the, uh, a blue kind of boundary but separating Jordan and the West Bank. This is where the Israeli, Israeli army wanted to put their army because uh, they can't trust the West Bank Palestinians to not let a Jordanian army, as if controlling the West Bank posed a threat to Israel before. Never did. But um, they say they have to put their army there to prevent um, the Palestinians from letting the Jordanians in to conquer Israel, as if that ever happened before. Um, and in green, this is meant to be a long-term lease, so Israel is actually going, uh, going to um, lease that area out. Um, whether they'll ever give it back is a different question, so they'll lease that area uh, of course, uh, now what people don't have not uh, are usually lied to about this. They say that Yasser Arafat rejected this generous um, offer. Uh, he didn't actually. He wanted more time, and the, the the Camp David Accords. Yes, he didn't say yes during the Camp David Accords. He wanted to continue the, the discussions into the next summit, which was at the Tabar summit, right? um, and continue with Barak's. Um, and continue to just in fact he was actually um as, as has been noticed by many um individuals who looked at any historians he was seemingly seeking to get from the arab governments and from his own population that, to accept that deal because Ehud Barak had told him that if he doesn't take this deal he what they won't get another uh, on the table for 25 years right, that's what he was told now Yasser Arafat never said no but time ran out because Ehud Barak uh, had to terminate the, the, the talks because of his upcoming election. The newly appointed, uh, the newly appointed uh, prime minister was, of course, Ariel Sharon, and Ariel Sharon um, was a right winger, and he didn't want to continue the the, the, the peace talks, and he took out the proposal from the table. He removed it from the table. So actually, it was Israel that withdrew the peace proposal. Um, just because Yasser Arafat wanted more clarification, wanted more um, time to see if he could get consensus amongst Palestinians. So even even with this, the lie that the Zionists say is that he said no to this very generous peace proposal. He actually even didn't, even though I don't call this generous. I don't think anyone would actually call this generous, but um, that's what the facts are. Anyway, he didn't say no to it. Okay. Um, now here is is uh, where we're reaching. Um, I think uh, towards now recent times, and we'll we'll, we'll, think, we'll go a bit more faster. But basically, um, the very key thing is called the Arab Peace Summit. Now, this is just a, a quotation of of part of it. Um, the, what was offered to Israel by the Arab League, as well as the Organization of Islamic Conference, Iran, and endorsed by Hamas as well, was Israel was was proposed that if they just give back the 1967 territories that were occupied, West Bank and, and Gaza, mm. that in return for that, they would recognize the um, right to exist. They would normalize relations, all the Arab League, all those Arab countries would normalize relations with Israel, would, 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 would uh, make peace, normalize relations, that includes Hamas, by the way, is involved in this, right? And Iran, right, is, is, is involved in this. And all they have to do is just give back those territories and, um, and sign a, an agreement, and there should be no problem. Uh, that was rejected by Israel. Uh, they say, we like the sentiment, 
know, normalization relations, that's really great. We like oh, that, yeah. you know. Yeah, we're, we're not opposed. We just uh, have issues with uh, the proposal and they rejected it. Um, now, I, I'd like to mention, and this is usually for the, the second part, very quickly, Yitzhak Rabin, the individual who is credited as being one of the, you know, the, uh, uh, an Israeli leader of peace, making uh, peace between the Arabs and so on. Uh, he explained that the Zionists were always concerned with, firstly, they don't want to give West Bank and Gaza away because um, these are strategic areas they want to control. But at the same time, they can't give, they can't annex them. Uh, at least in the normal way of annexing, means you have to give all the soldiers, all the, sorry, the, the population there equal citizenship. And he argued that even as far back as 1994, under a left-wing government, the Israelis decided, the government decided that, uh, of, of the idea of separation, it's called hafrada in Hebrew, uh, that hitting lines, he, he doesn't want, doesn't want uh, to swallow 1.8 million Arabs into the Israeli state. It's very dangerous to swallow, I, and this is regarding uh, the, the problem that Gaza caused uh, to Israel, because they, Gaza, even though they had um, Israeli settlements in Gaza at the time, but because there was a high population in that area, and there's, there's only a few Israeli settlements, you, it was more difficult for the West Bank to argue that they could be separate. And um, this policy of Hafrada would later on uh, lead to uh, the withdrawal from Gaza. But the Zionists would then mispaint mis, uh, that as simply, uh, we, we gave the Palestinians a state uh, in Gaza and look what they did with it. No, there was a reason you, they, they withdrew from it. Um, uh, we see that in 2000, uh, the beginning of the Second Intifada, and the investigation into that by the U.S. producing the Mitchell report. Uh, again, I'm going to leave people to kind of investigate that for themselves. Uh, but Sharon B. at the time was provocative, even was, was under a right-wing government, was very provocative to the Palestinians uh, in, in both the hard line he took and visit the Temple Mount, uh, as they call it, uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque enclosure and you know, the... the, the um, the area where you have the the, um, the place where Muslims believe that uh, the the Prophet Muhammad uh, ascended to heaven, um, he he would just so you understand it. We'll discuss it in the next session, though. But um, that's, that's meant to mention guardianship of the Jordanian government. So the Jordanian government is meant to control the Islamic religious sites in Jerusalem. That was the agreement between Jordan and um, Israel. Um, uh, Isra uh, Israeli Jews um, are, are kind of the, the chief rabbi of Israel has declared that it is forbidden for Israeli Jews to enter the Temple Mount because as the temple, as the former area of the temple, they'd be walking on the ground that is sacred ground and to walk on it with your feet is considered to be sacrilegious, just so you understand. Uh, but also if you... Um, it, to, to go into that area, you need to have permission from the, the, the mosque, um, uh, which allows non-Muslims in with, with permission uh, and to be respectful. Aaron Shalom 
didn't care. He just he went in anyway. And regularly, the Israeli police violate the Temple Mount and just walk in and even go into the, the mosque of the Al-Aqsa Masjid itself. Uh, this causes anger amongst Palestinians because they get cleared out of their own masjid. So they want to, they might go, need to go to pray. They get told to leave their own masjid. To, cause we can have all these police trampling in with a with a politician that is guilty of war crimes. You could see in in what he has has. Um, uh, Israeli general um, behind some massacres, people believe. So this is uh, very provocative. It starts the Second Intifada. Um, it results in many Israelis dead. Um, this uh, this comes a need for many people that, that they should have um, a, a, a conciliation process to like we, we need to reopen the peace talks. But again, Arishon never really engages with um, with peace talks with the, with the Palestinians. He, he tends to. And it was under his watch that he basically began something called um, the Full Hafrada Plan Separation War in the West Bank as well as Gaza. Um, and it's at this time we see a, uh, a concrete approach applied to what was previously a, a policy enacted only by police uh, checkpoints and security, uh, the building of a separation wall, uh, both in uh, Gaza as well as in the West Bank. Now, uh, Zionists will tell you that the separation wall uh, around the West Bank, uh, no, not in, perfectly around the West Bank, um, was because it was to stop uh, bombing campaigns that were happening during the Second Intifada, uh, because prior to that point, Palestinians would, with, with the appropriate permits, uh, be allowed to leave the West Bank and work in Israel proper as long as they obeyed the curfew and went back to West Bank um, at a certain time. Mm. So in order to prevent that, to stop that, they built a wall around it. Now, I think the Palestinians would tell you in the West Bank, they'd say, we have no problem with you building a wall around the, the 1967 boundaries. As long as you left yourself with it on the other side and you left us on our side, we'd have no problem with that wall. But mm -hmm. no, the wall was not just built around the West Bank. It was built within the West Bank as well, especially around settlements to take land uh, and to uh, firmly keep that land around uh, settlements. So as you can see from, I believe, uh, if there's, um, I, yes. Uh, so we see the barrier partition as of 2005 uh, it's, it's changed from this, this image, but you can see that the, this red line, which is the barrier partition, doesn't perfectly match the uh, 1967 boundary or 1948 boundary. Um, you can see that it's very heavily, uh, you could say, biased towards land inside West Bank. So uh, it kind of cuts off West Bank land from the, the uh, Israel proper, quote unquote, and it even takes much more land, like around Jerusalem, it cuts right into the West Bank, as well as uh, north of um, Salafit, which is just, uh, if, you, if you look to the uh, upper three quarters, uh, or, uh, or the, uh, the, the, the the second uh, quarter from the top, you'll see how it cuts into and winds all the way around, almost uh, near Nablus. Uh, this is the separation boundary, and of mm. course, it's, 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 that's only in the 2005 one. It's, it's actually worse now. Um, so this was where, um, okay, yeah. So this was where uh, the building of walls now uh, to 
separate the Palestinian population was built, and in Gaza too. And this really then precludes a possibility of the Palestinians uh, becoming equal citizens and a, a unitary state if, if Israel indeed wants to annex. Uh, but it doesn't. It keeps the Palestinians in this, I call it this quantum superposition of uh, they're in land that Israel says is their land, but it's not formally annexed. So therefore, they can be um, non-citizens within land that belongs to another country, even though they're native there. Um, okay, so just to fast forward, uh, to breach this impasse, um, uh, President George W. Bush, uh, which compared to Donald Trump actually now in retrospect, seems more intelligent and and uh, <laughs> more refined and sophisticated. Never for, anyone who remembers him uh, would never think they'd ever say that about him at the time. Um, uh, tried to uh, America tried to um, uh, push for a a resolution uh, and and a two state solution. America does want a two state solution. The problem is that Israel doesn't always play ball with the United States of America. Israel uh, is useful to America as a forward. You could say operating base, gathering intelligence, being used to pro project uh, U.S. power in the region, in the, in the strategic region. But Israel has its own ideas of um, and, and the land it wants to be uh, part of in its final form. Um, and America doesn't care about the West Bank if it's in Israel's hands or the other person's hands, you know, per se. Uh, it just wants a stable and recognized, you know, um, ally there to, to do its. Uh, Bidding in the region, but Israel wants that land, and so you'll find that despite the fact that the U.S. actually does push Israel to come to agreements and so on and so forth, it can't. Uh, uh, Israel doesn't is not always complying uh, with um, United States desire, desires, and the United States can't push it too hard because it wants Israel as an ally, it has to support it, and has to give it um, military funding every year. But it asks again for a phased withdrawal and um, a, a, peace, a peace process. Uh, this is what the famous roadmap agreement. I'll let you read it yourself, everyone, if you want to do further research. But the full Hafra, Hafra plan um, really uh, comes into uh, into full swing uh, during uh, the time of Ali Sharon, and of course Benjamin Netanyahu, as leader of opposition at this point in time. Um, also agrees with this. This was actually agreed by many policymakers in Israel, the idea of a separation of the Arabs and the um, Israelis, uh, the, the non-Israeli Arabs. And they explain why. Here, Benjamin Netanyahu says, if there is a demographic problem, and there is, it is with the Israeli Arabs who will remain Israeli citizens. We definitely need a policy that will, first of all, guarantee a Jewish majority. So that's with just them being concerned with the birth rate of Israeli Arabs within Israel proper. Mm. But Ayot Sharon mentions, he says, the settlements which will be located are those which will be not included in the territory of the state of Israel in the framework of any possible future permanent agreement. And regarding them, at this, the, the, this part of the, the framework of the disengagement plan, Israel will strengthen its control over the same areas in the land of Israel, which will constitute an inseparable part of the land of Israel in any future disagreement. So what he was talking about was he was going to remove settlements in Gaza and relocate them into West Bank to solidify the control of the West Bank, because no amount of settlements in the Gaza will ever solidify Israel's control in Gaza, because Gaza has, um, you know, at that point in time, you know, uh, over a million Palestinians and only a few, a few uh, 8,000, 9,000 um, uh, Israeli settlements in Gaza at the time. 
but Ehud Olmert, right, deputy leader of prime minister, in an interview in 2003, now you can, I, I'm not going to uh, read all this out, but I'll let you read it for yourself so you can see the quotation for yourself. But he argues that uh, the, the, the problem facing the, uh, the Zionist kind of project in Israel is a demographic one. Uh, they have to resolve the issue of um, keeping the Palestinians separate, as many of them as possible separate from uh, Israelis, not to, for it to, to be a, a cause where they become merged into one state. And he mentions this here, very, he mentions here, if you uh, look maybe eight, eight lines down or more, um, he says that the problem here is that um, uh, more and more Palestinians are uninterested in a negotiated two-state solution because they want to change the essence of the conflict from an Algerian paradigm to a South African one. So the Algerian paradigm is to is to remove settlers from your land, which obviously the Palestinians, um, uh, many of them believed, but of course it seems very unlikely now. But what they fear is to change it into a South African paradigm. So what they want is they want the Palestinians, uh, who are not Israeli citizens, um, in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, to not give up, in a, in a way, their desire to use an Algerian paradigm to remove the settlers, um, all, all the you know, um, settlers from the land or to take back uh, Palestine, it, because it is a uh, an unattainable goal and it keeps uh, Israel with possessing an excuse to treat them and to keep them separate. But if they were to change into a South African paradigm, this would be the worst thing ever. Because as he points in this, if it becomes one man, one vote, they're the majority. That will be then the end of um, the, the Zionist project because then mm. it'll be one man, one vote. Everyone has equal rights. Uh, and there's no way they could really fight against that uh, politically in, in the globe, in the globe, in the global image of Israel. Uh, and they would lose like, South Africa lost, and then that would be the end of the Zionist project, uh, which is about Jews ruling the land. Not just Jews living in the land, but Jews must rule the land. That's the Zionist project. They have to have privilege in the sense of they must be the rule makers and uh, control the power. Um, so this is uh, for you to read further. But this, um, then he says, he talks about uh, that in order to preclude this, they have to talk about a policy of unilateral, if you look at the bottom, unilateral separation. Um, so keeping those Palestinians who are not, not Israelis separate, and therefore you preclude the need to talk about um, a one-state solution um, as long as you, uh, and even delay even having a dialogue with them for like uh, for almost a quarter of a century as you keep them in this in this zone you want them, which is that they uh, want to remove you as a colonial entity, which they can't achieve. Uh, and you don't want them to call for a one, that, that they'll become Israeli citizens. So you keep them in this nice little um, limbo zone uh, while you in further strengthen your grip on West, the West Bank, which, which, you, which, which you desire as a, as a designer to increase the land. So the reason they left Gaza uh, and I will contend, and there's many, there's many evidence for this, is because if they didn't, the argument would be made that if um, there's the Gaza is a small little strip, you have 8,000 Jews and over a million Palestinians, um, 
which are so closely intertwined, why can't you, why can't you just absorb them as, as citizens in the state? But if you, if you separate from, if you withdraw from Gaza and build a wall around it, well, that's not a problem you have to think about because it's a separate entity from us. Although we don't say we're occupying it, but it's a separate entity uh, from the Israeli state. Um, and of course, Ariel Shalom himself mentioned the disengagement plan from um, Gaza. He says the significance of the disengagement plan is the freezing of the peace process. Hmm. I'll let you read the rest of that quote for yourself. Um, but uh, they are quite clear about the reasons for disengagement in, from Gaza. Zionists misrepresent that now. We say, oh, we gave you a state, we gave you land, look how you repaid us. Say, like, no, that's not, uh, you didn't give land because you, you blockaded it and controlled it but uh, to the, from, from the Palestinians, but to, they, they, you still controlled it. You never let them be, be independent. Um, Okay, so the disengagement plan is enacted in 2005, the withdrawal is enacted. Um, of course, uh, elections occur, and in 2006, um, because Hamas wins those elections, uh, who don't recognize Israel uh, as legitimate nor its right to exist, uh, they then impose sanctions against uh, Gaza. Um, now, again, the, the Lebanon war, uh, so another invasion of Lebanon, uh, this, this is where they say they'll send to out to remove uh, Hezbollah, that fails. Uh, the Annapolis conference, um, again, the United States wants to push to come to an agreement um, uh, uh, to a mutual roadmap of withdrawal and the end of tensions because the Israeli government is intractable and it's not looking good for America's interests in the region. It, it doesn't want a... a um, vexatious uh, Israeli state, but unfortunately, um, that's what the state, they, that's the partner they, they get. Um, the bombing of Gaza in 2012, uh, there was flare-ups between, um, obviously, uh, Hamas and the, the Israeli uh, government. Now, we'll, we'll discuss this in the next part as to why these occur, um, but I'll, I'll just put it here for the point of historical information. We also see again, two years later, the bombing of Gaza again, Operation Protective Edge, edge quote-unquote. Uh, now, just three years ago, Trump peace plan, uh, also the, this formatting has gone a bit awry, uh, the, the Trump peace plan, which is even more ridiculous than the Camp David plan. Um, uh, again, no access to Jerusalem, like basically Jerusalem is just completely uh, in... Um, uh, in in the orbit of, uh, of of Israeli annexation, and some really strange uh, kind of lumps of land given in the Negev, which is a wasteland, by the way, <laughs> mostly on the bottom. Now, of course, the Palestinians weren't interested uh, to uh, to to into that. It was a ridiculous plan. Uh, they don't have. Oh, by the way, in all these proposals, just so in, you, everyone knows. Um, it is taken as a given that the Palestinians are, not, are still not allowed control over their airspace, so their airspace is controlled by Israel, as well as not allowed to have a military. So hmm. uh, they can't control their borders with Jordan, uh, which is a, a key because they don't have a country. It's, it's kept away it's like, you know, from Jordan with this buffer zone controlled by Israel on the, um, on the, on, on the, the, to the west side of the River Jordan. So this is why no Palestinian who wants an independent state would ever agree to these uh, proposals. Um, okay, uh, 
And that brings us to recent history, recent, recent history, the last three years, where Bahrain, UAE and Sudan and Morocco uh, all normalized relations and agreed to recognize Israel. Now, this is done without any agreement with the Palestinians, without any let up in the treatment of Palestinians. And, um, you know, Morocco has an issue with South Sahara, which America makes a deal to recognize Morocco's control over South, uh, so Western Sahara, sorry. Uh, UAE wants uh, fighter jets, uh, and so that's the carrot that's offered to them. Um, there's, a, there's a number of geopolitical reasons for this, but it's got certainly nothing to do with giving the Palestinians back um, the West Bank or Gaza. Um, 2021, and the another bombing of Gaza, again, and riots, which we'll, we can discuss in the next uh, uh, second part, you could say, where we discuss uh, Zionist arguments, but just here for historical uh, note. Uh, and this really brings us to the, to the end of this kind of presentation. And I, I suppose I am uh, uh, kind of giving you a preview into the kind of things that we will be discussing in the second part, inshallah. So one of the key uh, Zionist propaganda uh, talking points is that uh, the Arabs, or the Palestinians to be more specific, have been offered peace proposals repeatedly and they always reject these peace proposals. And Israel is a country of peace and it wants peace and uh, it's willing to give land for peace and so on and so forth. Uh, but this rejects um, uh, some surprising facts you might not be aware of, which is um, multiple factions of the Palestinians and the local uh, Arab regimes have offered Israel peace repeatedly. Mm. And even when the United Nations itself come together with these regimes have again agreed on a peace proposal, Israel has consistently rejected the vast majority of peace proposals. And when I say the vast majority as in of all the ones that, are, if you add together all the ones that Israel's made, those, those so-called peace plans, and all the ones that are were made by others, the UN, uh, the Arab states, the Palestinians, uh, which are the vast majority of the peace proposals, Israel has rejected those. Um, so the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002, which I already mentioned, uh, which included the Organization of Islamic Conference, uh, the OIC, the, uh, endorsing the proposal, that, that includes Iran. Um, but lesser known is also Hamas's peace proposals to Israel, which might be surprising. Uh, and really, and I mention it here because it just challenges the Zionist narrative. And I think the Zionist narrative has to be challenged uh, if it contradicts the facts. Uh, so it, because it's so, it might be a bit strange for you to hear this. So I, I decided to just give you um, screen captures of the news articles you can see in yourself. Uh, if you see at the bottom there, this is in 2006. Um, now, Hamas doesn't or can't uh, give a formal recognition of Israel's right to exist from it according to its own principles. Uh, it can't uh, give Israel an indefinite normalization, but it does the next best thing from at least its own principles to allow it, which is it kind of gives de facto recognition, not de jure recognition to Israel. It offered that, um, as well as a 10-year a, a, a truce, um, Hudna, the, the term it was used, uh, a type of treaty um, similar to, you could say, the treaty uh, <laughs> of Hodebiya, right? Ten years, uh, which can be renewed. And they're, they're probably going to, the intent was to renew it indefinitely, I suppose, uh, because 
uh, their principles won't allow a normalization, which would be an indefinite treaty. Um, so they offered that in 2006. They offered it in 2008 and said in return for the 1967 borders, they even said that they'd even say they'd give implicit. They said uh, that the treaty gives implicit proof of recognition of Israel. They, they said we can't say it uh, literally, but we, we give it implicitly. Uh, that and and in uh, 2012, uh, Hamas leader um, was uh, Ahmed Jabari, uh, who was actually reviewing a draw. He was in in kind of uh, discussions with. Um, uh, Israeli politicians to have a, a type of permanent truce uh, with them in 2012. And in fact, he just received, according to this article, a draft of a permanent truce agreement with Israel, uh, but he was uh, then uh, targeted for, for a targeted assassination by Israeli forces. I mean, you could have just said no, you know, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and of course, in 2017, Hamas even changed their charter from the uh, infamous 1988 one, uh, declaring that they would, uh, in essence, uh, as an, as they put it, uh, as part of national a national consensus initiative to uh, recognize Israel within 1967 borders. So they stay on Israel proper and they on the West Bank on the Gaza. So they offered it again here. This is Hamas offering, of course, Netanyahu says Hamas is attempting to fool the world and then just says no, no to it. So a reason why I mention this, I want to be very clear, is that um, I mention this and I mention these cases because this uh, clearly contradicts the Zionist narrative that they're the ones who have their peace proposals rebuffed, uh, if, you, if you can call them that, uh, whereas the peace proposals made by, uh, agreed by the PLO, the Arab League, Iran, even Hamas are regularly rebuffed by mm -hmm. Israeli state. Of course, if you if you want a bigger uh, proposal than just those individuals, uh, you can have you can um, take as example the UN resolutions. It's basically every almost every year there is a vote uh, by the UN called the Peaceful Settlement of the Question of Palestine Resolution, and the members of the General Assembly, the nations around the world, vote uh, to resolve the problem uh, of the uh, borders, and they all come to the same conclusion, including uh, approved by um, the uh, PLO, or the, the Palestine Authority now, acting as the unobserver member of the state of Palestine, approving this, uh, approved by Iran, approved by um, Arab states, uh, which again, talk of a resolution within the 1967 borders, give the West Bank back, give Gaza back, and there will be a, a resolution, settlement, peace, recognition. And the vast majority of the nations on earth vote for it. I mean, I'm, I'm just, where on earth is the Marshall Islands? Or the Marshall Islands, where on earth are they? I mean, you got like the world superpower and the Marshall Islands, the two people, you know, excuse me, I mean, I've, or, I don't know where they are. I mean, or, or Palau. Um, oh, does you know, anyone even live on these islands? I mean, I, or Palau, Palau. I mean, I exactly. Thought, I thought Palau was a type of rice, but uh, it's and, also Micronesia. I mean, yeah. where is, I mean, you know, the, the, these are like tiny little islands in the middle of nowhere, probably, uh, and they have yippee, they have a vote. So, gosh. Yes, uh, I, I, I wonder who's. Um, 
I wonder who's given them the idea to vote the way they did. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there wasn't any uh, back channels giving Marshall the Islands lots of money or trade deals or advantage. I'm sure there was no bribery involved at all. I'm sure these microstates wouldn't be intimidated at all by the United States. America. America is a peace-loving nation, so there wouldn't have been any um, intimidation. Hmm. So, so uh, now th this was taken from um, uh, Norman Finkelstein's uh, book. He, he ah. submitted a nice little table. Uh, it's called. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, it was a, an inquest into the martyrdom of, of, of Gaza and. But just shows how Israel and the US can hold the world hostage, basically, uh, against the will of the global community. And um, it's, it's a, in my view, it's, a, it's a, a systemic error in the United Nations itself that, that one, two nations can systematically violate the will of the world for years and years and years. It's just the system is, is broken. It needs to change. But that's a different subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Like I mean, this is not this is not all the votes. There's votes since and and, uh, and so on, but uh, which have pretty much in, uh, gone in the same trajectory. But mm -hmm. um, uh, Norman Finkelstein in his book Gaza: An Inquest into Its Martyrdom um, put a nice little table, so I thought I would just uh, nick it and put it into. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it just um, conveys it very well. Uh, the yeah, yeah. And, and this is again this, the peaceful settlement is recognized borders, recognized states, they uh, mutual recognition um, within those borders, um, uh, and including the establishment of the state of, of Palestine. And of course, if you if you do want uh, proof of this, um, uh, this uh, excerpt is taken as from the um, uh, from the, the, the resolution, uh, a statement made by the state of Palestine, which is again, has a permanent observer status in the UN, but it's not a formal uh, member of the UN. That's been denied by the United States of America, of course, and by Israel. Um, that that they are agreeing and approve this resolution, just in case you want to uh, uh, dot the I and cross the T on that and make sure that, so do they actually approve that resolution themselves? Because they can't vote on it because they're not a member of the General Assembly, but they do, um, they've endorsed it here formally and it's included mm -hmm. in the text of these resolutions itself. It's formal approval. So the Palestinian Authority formally approves of this and is willing to abide uh, by that res resolution. Um, but uh, this was made two years ago. Uh, I, I was actually wondering if they would ever go through with this because this would be quite fascinating if they did. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, uh, the, the, the leader of the Palestinian Authority or the PLO, or Fatah, the Fatah faction, um, he got rather frustrated. He, made, he said, he said uh, it was probably one of his throwaway statements, but he said that if Israel does not withdraw from the occupied territories uh, in the space of one year, um, obviously he didn't go through with this, but if they do not, uh, he will go to the International Court of Justice to seek adjudication over the legitimacy of the occupation. But uh, if that doesn't work out, uh, then he, if, if he makes the possibility of a Palestinian state remote and uh, it's not good and unlikely to ever happen, um, then they will change their approach and that they will uh, change their approach from instead having a separate state to, as he says, circumstances on the ground will inevitably impose, uh, sorry, uh, equal and full political rights for all on the land of the historical Palestine within one state to change it from an Algerian paradigm into a South African paradigm. So, all right, then, if you're going to deny us our state, 
then give us citizenship, equal citizenship. If you're gonna, if you say that you control the land, you own the land, West Bank belongs to you, Gaza belongs to you, Israel. If you say this, Israel, then you must give us citizenship and equal rights. Then, right? But of course, uh, that would that is the ultimate nightmare of the um, Israeli uh, uh, Zionist side. Um, and yes, this is the the state of Palestine for those who want to know. Like, it actually has a state. Yes, it does. Um, and not only does it did it get um, it was it recognized by the UN as a non-member observer state in 2012, but also it's been recognized as a state by 138 countries out of 193 um, state, uh, member states in the United Nations. So they have recognized it as a state. Um, whether it's its lands, its borders haven't been formally defined is, is all. But, but I, I, I assume the, uh, what about the, I don't know, does the European Union and the United States recognize Israel, uh, sorry, Palestine as a state? Well, no, the, the United States of America would not want to make Israel angry um, in recognizing. Um, and, of course. And, and the EU or the, the uh, Europe, does it recognize? Uh, well, you know what? If you if you want to check it for yourself, they they don't. Um, well, most most of the European countries do. Okay, not. okay, okay. Because um, so so much for recognizing the sovereignty of people and their self right to self determination. Then okay. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's. Uh, let me see if it's. Um, uh, I think. Yeah, so there's 20, 20, 27 states in the in the European Union. I think about only eight or nine of them recognize um, really? the state of Palestine as a state. Uh, eight I, know, I, I, I bet I bet Britain isn't one of them, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, well, uh, it 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 regularly uh, abstains from UN votes on. Exactly. So the usual suspects probably don't recognize it. Abstains from, from such, 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 it abstained on even the partition plan. It abstained on that too, the, in, from 1948. England, now it has divested itself of responsibility, can just um, abstain and say, well, you know, we're not responsible anymore, so don't, don't blame us <laughs> uh, for it. But that's it. Oh, yes, indeed. And yes, I must point out, thank you very much, uh, that you have uh, a website. Uh, if you want to learn more about what Abdullah has covered, finding all the detailed references and sources, uh, source material, uh, Abdullah will be producing an in-depth course on advocating for Palestinian rights and criticizing Zionism in the next few months. And to register, please visit the website address you can see in front of you, advocateforpalestine.com. Uh, and of course, this video is, is uh, part one of a two-part series. Uh, the second one will address the top 10 Zionist responses and accusations to criticisms and critics of the Zionist occupation of Palestine and its treatment of Palestinians. So um, that promises to be very juicy. Um, so thank you very much indeed, Abdullah, for uh, your outstanding detail. And uh, it's very, obviously, you're, you're trying to be precise and accurate and not give in to hyperbole or rhetoric. You're giving the facts, really. Um, and that's What's what really matters in this? Um, so thank well, you very I'm much. Caveat to um, or any any history buffs or anyone who's who studied it that um, there's 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 I've glossed over a lot of things. There are so many details, points, mm. events uh, because it is truly uh, a, a massive topic covering. I mean, not just you could say a hundred years, but in theory, depending yeah. on. 
and, and of course, since your since your slides, I mean, you know, history has been made as we speak. Uh, terrible history. So it, it's ongoing. It's just getting worse, um, unfortunately. Yeah, um, and as I said, like all we can do is arm ourselves with knowledge, information, uh, be aware, and you know, it's with such a heavy heart that I feel um, very sad to have to add another slide on the bombardment of Gaza uh, to the, the history um, record of teaching this course uh, coming up, and 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 that, that's it. But all we can do is arm ourselves with facts, and inshallah, um, educate the public about this and not be fooled by the rhetoric and the kind of false argumentation of Zionists. And inshallah, in the next part, we will focus specifically on uh, the top 10 uh, Zionist arguments, uh, mm. popular or uh, and or strong. I don't know if you describe them as strong, because they're not really strong, but, but let's say the top 10 uh, yeah. Zionist arguments used uh, to yeah. criticize the person in position or those who criticize them uh, on their position. Excellent. Well, I very much look forward to that. Uh, thank you very much indeed uh, again, Abdullah. And we will see you, we'll see you again, inshallah. So until then, take care. Bye.